This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 582, a conversation with Ralph Macchio. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. This is episode 582. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is our conversation with Ralph Macchio. I was very fortunate to be able to sit down and uh, chat with Ralph Macchio on the phone. Uh, not the Karate Kid uh, Ralph Macchio, of which we actually never mentioned that. I just kind of let that, that, that sleeping dog lie. I'm sure I could have asked that, but I feel like he's probably been asked that many times in the past about what it was like to suddenly have uh, a movie star with the same name. So I, I just sidestepped that question entirely. Uh, but we did have a, a real... I thought at least a, a very enjoyable conversation we spoke for about three hours uh just chatting on the phone about all things comics uh his tenure in comics all the different kind of projects he worked on there are is sorry there is a lot or sorry there are a lot of projects we did not chat about um when you've worked for marvel you know for 35 years like ralph um you could talk for for days um, without necessarily repeating himself. Like he's been involved with almost every character. He's been involved in so many different facets of the business. Um, You know, he's worked with everybody. Um, So, you know, three hours only barely scratches the surface. There's certain elements of his career at Marvel that we barely even got into. We barely even discussed the ultimate line. Um, We talked a little bit about it here and there, but we didn't really kind of go too deep into it. We talked about uh, Marvel zombies. Um, We talked about uh, working on Born Again with Frank Miller. Uh, we talked about the uh, the Spider-Man books as he kind of was the one brought in to kind of bring the Clone Saga to a close, um, figure out who was going to be the, mar- the major mastermind, of which he then kind of was part of the decision to bring back Norman Osborn, and uh, also was behind the decision um, to bring back uh, May Parker, uh, Aunt May, which was interesting because, I mean, a lot of people aren't necessarily fans of the, the way in which the story was told that they kind of were able to get out of the um, the Amazing Spider-Man 400 death, but it's hard to uh, refute his reasoning for wanting to bring the character back. Um, so it's it's one of those things, and I made this comparison to, I think it was Eric Anthony of the uh, Cave of Solitude podcast. He might have been the one where I kind of made the reference that, you know, it uh, was kind of one of those things where, kind of like One More Day. One More Day is kind of like a, an unpleasant birth. Um, it didn't necessarily go the way you wanted it to. It was kind of ugly. You'd rather not think about it. But as a result, you had this amazing, you know, new, you know, you had brand new day, which, which is kind of like this new bouncing baby boy or girl uh, coming from something that was kind of terrible um, or at least hard to read and not enjoyable for anybody involved. But it, you know, created something new. It was created something that was good. And when they brought M.A. back, think about all the amazing storylines that JMS did with M.A. when she found out that Peter was Spider-Man. And even what Dan Slott has done with her and trying to move the character forward, have her move on to another relationship. I mean, she's had a couple, but uh, after Uncle Ben, but moving into a more you know substantial one where it actually led into marriage and eventually the death of that husband, uh, what that does to someone. Uh, there's a lot that you know, has been done, and really that could not have been done if not for you know bringing the May Parker character back. And it does change the dynamic somewhat um, or restores a, a dynamic and the idea of this kind of a walking reminder of the guilt that Peter will always have. Anyways, this is something that Ralph goes into, but uh, it's interesting for me to think about it. So I know a lot of people don't necessarily like the storyline, but it's hard to refute the reasoning for why they wanted to do it. Um, whether or not they were maybe as successful in terms of the actual story is a whole other matter, um, but it's hard to argue with the, you know, the reason. And I actually thought it was a very interesting uh, argument he kind of puts forth about why they wanted to do that and why that was kind of a 
a principal thing that was um, on their minds when they when they decided to do the next chapter. Uh, anyways, I've, I've prattled on long enough. It's been almost four minutes of this. Uh, you're about to have three hours of me and Ralph chatting about comics. Uh, again, tremendously entertaining uh, for me as an interviewer. One of my favorite interviews I've had. Um, and I hope I get to have Ralph back on the show at some point. He's uh, just a treasure trove of information. So many amazing insights. And I think you're really going to dig this episode. I know I enjoyed doing it. Uh, you can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook. Rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And you can also listen to us on Stitcher. Upcoming episodes, uh, we should have episodes in the next little while with Pete Woods, Brian Wood, um, Jim Kruger, and others. Uh, we're just working on finalizing some of the dates for some of them. But uh, yeah, some great stuff coming up over the summer. Uh, I think we might have a couple movie review episodes. I know we're doing one for Ant-Man and the Wasp. That's going to be me and my wife. I may be doing one with The Incredibles 2. I'm not sure yet. Um, a little kind of on the fence on that. We might have one for Teen Titans Go to the movies, I should say. Teen Titans Go to the movies. I'm not really sure about that one either. Uh, and then we're going to have something for episode 600. I should really start thinking about what to do because uh, we're not that far away. This is, what what I say, episode 582. So we're getting closer and closer to episode 600. It's hard to believe. I've almost done 600 episodes um, and six years of this podcast, but that's uh, that's kind of crazy to me. All right, with all, without any further ado, let's jump right into my very enjoyable, very lengthy conversation conversation with Ralph Macchio. Enjoy. One last note, I do want to thank the following people for the Marvel Masterworks Forum for submitting questions for this interview. I wanted to thank uh, Richard63, Mike Murdoch, Comics Ate My Brand, Garuda, and Iraq Walker. Thank you very much for submitting your questions, and uh, most of them were integrated into this interview with Ralph. Thank you so much. Enjoy the interview. Ralph, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? Very good. Very, very good. All right. Well, I've I've got a lot to talk to you about. Or at least I think I do. Um, you you've worked on everything. It seems like at Marvel, <laughs> almost. It, it, it definitely looks like it. Looking down your credit list, but uh, let's 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 go way back uh, to your beginning. When do comics first become part of of Ralph's life? Well, I have to say that um, I was, uh, you know, I'm dating myself here, but I was actually uh, an eight to ten year old uh, during the 1950s. So. This was pre-Marvel. Uh, my my first experience with comics really was when I started to go to camp, to Rockley Day Camp, and I noticed that the kids up there were all uh, had comic books in their cubby holes and things like that. And around lunchtime, when we we'd have our break from uh, the usual camp stuff, they would kind of uh, exchange them back and forth. And what they were were really mainly the DC 1950s Silver Age comics. The uh, Mort Weisinger Supermans, the Action Comics, Jimmy Olsen's uh, Supermans, uh, and the um, uh, Julie Schwartz Green Lanterns, Flash, uh, Justice Leagues, etc. And I became um, interested in them and kind of picked them up from those guys right away. And I really, really enjoyed them. I mean, it was just opening up a whole new world. Um, you know, I, I just found that there were things that just areas that they went to of, of exploration in there and things that they, they went into, other dimensions and time and space and, and, and such that I just loved. And you really couldn't get that anywhere else. You know, if you were a kid watching television during the 50s, whatever, there, you, you know, you, you had some, some kind of silly things on television, but nothing that sort of took it kind of seriously like these things did. So I, I just fell in love with them. And then... Um, as the 1960s started, uh, there was this new company that, uh, you know, I'd go to the newsstands when I, uh, once I really got into the comic thing. I was picking up all those nice DC books. And then in the early 1960s, Marvel started. Now, I have to admit, I did not jump on the Marvel bandwagon 
initially. Um, I was used to the DC characters and the concepts there, and and when I picked up the four, on the stands when I when I picked up the first issues of Fantastic Four and Spider Man and such, and I looked through them, they were kind of dirty looking. The paper quality wasn't as good. The coloring, you know, you could tell back then the, the quality of the coloring wasn't as good. They they looked sort of cramped in comparison with the very clean, um, you know, sophisticated look that you would get, say, in The Flash or Adam Strange or the Mort Weisinger Supermans, um, you know, they were very different. And it took me a while to warm to them. Uh, and, and, you know, once I did, I just found that there was something interesting about these characters that you would begin to follow their lives. Uh, Stan, I think, was brilliant when he put the soap operatic elements in there because one of the things I found in retrospect and thinking about things was what drew me into Marvel and what really kind of hooked me on him was that the characters and the situations would kind of grow from issue to issue. Relationships would change. Things that had been established one issue would begin to pay off in the next one. What you would find with, say, the Mort Weisinger Supermans, which also were brilliant, by the way. When you were an 8- to 10-year-old and you read those Superman comics, they were utterly charming. I mean, they, they drew you in. But what happened in those... The most amazing things could occur to Superman or to Jimmy Olsen or to anybody else in there. The most incredible stuff. But at the end, the status quo always was retained. Everything went back to exactly what it was. And again, it worked for those comics because you could do the most outrageous stuff with Superman. You could have, you know, Red Kryptonite give him a lion's head or you could run, you know, turn into a, an insect or whatever it was. The craziest things could go on. You know, in the Jimmy Olsen comics, he was he became a last lad, all these nutty things. But at the end, the status quo went right back to the way it was so they could start it all again next issue. But what began in the Marvel comics with things that got set up in there began to pay off. In other words, it wasn't as if one issue ended and the status quo went back to what it was. Characters began to move forward. Relationships began to move forward, as in real life. So you would, you would follow these characters and you would begin to follow them as people, not really so much as stories. And it became... The real interest really became your your involvement with the characters in their lives, and I think that was very deliberate on Stan's part, picking up the whole idea of the soap opera, that you sort of got involved with their never-ending series of problems, because it didn't end at the end of an issue. So gradually, bit by bit, I kind of got more and more interested in the Marvel comics and also the way the world was being formed. You know, at the DC books, there really wasn't uh, an attempt, I think, to make it a cohesive universe. Not that it was contradictory. You would have the Flash and Green Lantern team up. You know, you would certainly have the Justice League where there would be references in there to what was going on with the characters in their individual books. But you didn't get the sense really that a world was being built. At Marvel, you began to realize all the characters now were, most of them anyway, were, were located in and around New York City, except for the Hulk, really, who was out in the Southwest. And it was a real location. It was a real landscape. It was a real place. You know, I used to go from New Jersey into New York, and I, you know, at that age, you kind of would look around and see if you'd see Daredevil or Spider-Man <laughs> swinging around from the rooftops. I remember with my buddies going down to, to Greenwich Village one time. We were looking for Dr. Strange's house on Bleecker Street, and <laughs> it, it, there was a sense of reality to it that you were, you were dealing with real people, that they were, that they were moving through their lives, 
and that a universe was being built, that there were these unexpected connections between all of it, and that it was all a very consistent universe. And this helped to create, I think, that, that Marvel geek that just wanted to have everything work. It all had to fit together. And you didn't really get that sense from DC, because I don't think they were trying to create really a cohesive universe that, that way. As I say, those books were wonderful and charming, and I've got nothing but nice things to say about them. Green Lantern had great stuff in it, The Flash, they were, they were fantastic for your imagination. But there wasn't a sense that a world was being built. You began to get that sense with the Marvel comics. So that's what drew me to them more and more, and that's really how I got involved um, with comics and, and have sustained my interest in them ever since. Now, how, if we you know jump forward uh, a number of years when you first kind of enter, how do you how do you start working at Marvel? How does that kind of come about? Okay, I was not um, much of a convention goer. There are a lot of people who spend a lot of time at conventions, but I, I never really went to them much. I used to write a lot of letters to the Marvel books with ideas I had and critiques of the various stories and issues. But um, it was it was one of those things that got me into Marvel where it could have gone one way or the other. It really was, it was almost like that Woody Allen movie Match Point where, you know, the ball goes over the net or it doesn't go over the net. You know, mm-hmm. the jewels go over the fence so they don't go over the fence. <laughs> and what happens, that's really the pivotal point where everything is going to go from there on. And that's what happened with me. I had gone to a convention, I think it was 1974-75 in New York City. And as I was leaving the convention, I had had an opportunity, I think, to meet Jack Kirby there and a few other people, had them sign some books. But it was a new experience for me. I, I went because it was in New York, and back then, they weren't the monstrous affairs they were today. They used to have them sort of in the basement of the Statler Hilton Hotel. You'd get <laughs> two or three hundred guys there, or, or kids or whatever. And that was about it. So I was, I was leaving, and I remember Don McGregor, who had written the Black Panther, which was a series, and, and Kill Raven, um, War of the Worlds, two series that I used to write a lot of letters to, and I, got re- I was really very devoted to. And as I was walking out, I was heading towards the lobby, and I was just about to go out the door, and I heard someone mention the Black Panther, and I just sort of jerked my head to the left, and I guess there was a guy behind the table. I'd never seen him before, but it was Don McGregor. And I said, oh, here's an opportunity for me to, you know, I had a couple of Black Panther books on me. Maybe I could uh, get him to sign them. So I went over to the table where he was. Now, again, I, had, I was just about to push the door and leave the convention, <laughs> and we wouldn't be having this conversation if I had gone out that door. So I went over to the table and came my turn, and I mentioned my name, and he got all excited. He goes, wow, man, you're the guy who writes all those letters to me and the Black Panther and the Kill Raven. He goes, I can tell you're a real fan. You're really devoted. I said, oh, yeah, Mr. McGregor, I really love stuff. He goes, how'd you like to get a tour of Marvel? I said, wow, I, I was going home. I, I Okay. I said, well, when would you like me? Right now, he goes, I'm just about done here. We'll, you know, we'll wrap it up. i, I got to go back in the convention for a while, but then I'll take you up to Marvel. So I did. I followed him back in the convention, and I do recall that he was meeting or talking to Howard Chaikin at the time. I didn't know anything about Howard Chaikin or anything like that, and I just remember the two of them chatting and, and you know, being very amiable and, and kidding each other. And then he, he took me up to Marvel. And I started to walk around the office. I said, wow, this is, this is incredible. I'm walking around here. Now, again, I was, a, I was in graduate school at the time. I wasn't a kid. I was, this was in the you know, mid-70s. Mm. So I'm walking around, 
And he introduced me to Chris Claremont, who happened to be up there. And I also had written letters to X-Men and to Iron Fist, which Chris was writing. And he goes, wow. He goes, hey, you know, you write pretty good. He goes, uh, I've got the fan magazine, Foom. Would you like to do an article for Foom? And I said, oh, okay. I'm, you know, I'm in English lit. I'll do it for you. He goes, okay, good. I want you to interview Roy Thomas. Um, Roy may be going out to the West Coast, but he's supposed to come up here on Fridays. See if you can corral him and interview him. And I want to talk to, uh, talk to him about Conan and all. And then I want you to do an article about Conan for Foom. And I said, okay. Now, what happened was that was my sort of access to Marvel. I had never intended to work in comic books, Adam. I had um, was intending to get my master's degree in English literature and then look for a teaching job. Um, I always loved literature, uh, Shakespeare, the Greeks, early American literature. And that was what I was going to go into. But at that time, uh, there were... It was very difficult to get a job in teaching, and things were not going well as I began to sort of sniff around and look at different places. So I was in graduate school just kind of hanging out. So I said, oh, I might as well just, you know, I'll go back to Marvel on Fridays and try to interview Roy. Well, Roy was very busy because he was heading out to the West Coast to set up shop there for himself. And he really didn't have time to, for a long interview, so I'd go up there to, to talk with him, and he, he, he kind of brushed me off because he had other things to do. And so he says, catch me next week. I'll be up next week. Well, I used to hang around the office then, and I ran into a whole bunch of guys that, that were up there working there during the mid-'70s. Don McGregor was up there, Doug Mensch, um, Steve Gerber, a whole bunch of guys. Uh, and I started to get friendly with them. John Warner, who was the assistant on the black and white line, which was ultimately what I started working on. And um, another thing that, that worked kind of in my favor was that almost everybody worked in comics back then, but not everybody, but almost everybody, kind of lived in the New York City area. Mm-hmm. And my family owned a furniture moving company, Macrae Movers. And these guys were always moving around. They were always moving from one apartment to the other. They were always moving from Queens to Brooklyn, from Brooklyn to, you know, downtown Manhattan, whatever. And I was able to offer them the opportunity to move for free. I could get a step van from my father on the weekends and help them move. So that, you know, ingratiated me with them. And I began to go out to movies with these guys. Remember, I was just kind of going up there and and hanging out. You could hang out at you know, Marvel back then and uh, meet the guys in the bullpen, Danny Crespi and all that, John Verporten, and get friendly. And I sort of became one of the guys. And then Archie Goodwin, who was the editor of the Black and White magazines with John Warner as his assistant, he was promoted to editor-in-chief. I think Marv Wolfman had, no, Jerry Conway, I think, had been editor-in-chief for a very brief time, and he left. Archie took over, and John Warner became the black and white line editor. He needed an assistant. I was very friendly. John and I became very good friends. And he says, Ralph, would you like to come on as my assistant? And I was thinking, do I want to pursue the teaching thing? Maybe I can still, you know, do some graduate courses, but, you know, this is going to be a paying job. So I got on staff as John Warner's assistant back in 1976, and I started to work with him on the black and white lines, and I stayed there for a spell. Uh, John wound up leaving, um, and Dave Kraft came in, Roger Slifer came in as editors, and I remained on the black and white line for a while, and I moved over to the color comics, and I began to uh, work there as an assistant. And the interesting thing was, the reason that I stayed for so long when a lot of other people left was, back then, you got on staff at Marvel as a kind of a gateway to getting freelance work. Once you got enough freelance work, you left staff. It was just kind of accepted. Even editor-in-chiefs were kind of on staff for a few years. 
then they would they would leave staff with a bunch of their own books. Mm-hmm. And that's what everybody did. Um, so, you know, Jerry Conway, for example, just before I came on, he was editor-in-chief, and he left, and he left with about six books. And, you know, Don McGregor, you know, all these guys would work on staff as proofreaders or as assistants, but the ultimate goal was to get two or three freelance assignments and leave staff. Well, I thought differently. I like the idea of working on staff. I like the idea of working with people. I like the idea of coming into an office. And it happened to work in my favor that, you know, Marvel was in Manhattan and I lived in northern New Jersey. So it was just a quick bus ride in or, you know, I had my license, of course, and I, I drove in and I parked in the city. So that's, that became my, uh, my thing was to stay on staff and to make a career out of it then because I really wasn't getting anywhere with the teaching thing. And I said, you know, if I stay around, uh, I'll eventually become an editor and who knows what will happen. But I was really enjoying the editing part of things. I found that writing like when I used to write letters in and, and such, it was a very solitary thing. You had to be on your own, and I didn't like that. I liked working with people. I liked the, the office atmosphere. I liked, you know, seeing Stan Lee run down the office and meeting all these guys, and, and I just liked the Marvel atmosphere. The, the, I have to tell you that the, the bullpen and the whole office thing was every bit as much fun as Stan made it out to be. Um, when he used to talk about the bullpen, the, the wacky bullpen and all, it was. It was such an informal, fun place. It was great to hang out with those people and to become part of it. And John Romita Jr. at that time, um, he was on staff doing lettering corrections. Uh, his father was the art director. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all just became friends, and I just loved it up there. It was like a second home. So I didn't want to leave. I said, I'm going to stay here. And because um, people have asked me, you know, how come you stayed there, you know, for so long? Because I just loved the atmosphere. I loved the people. I loved working on the characters more from an editorial standpoint than I did as a writer. Um, you know, I've done a lot of writing, a fair amount in my career, but I never considered myself really a, a writer so much as I did an editor who did some writing. Uh, I just liked working kind of behind the scenes and orchestrating, you know, every aspect of a book rather than just writing a script and then turning it in. So that was my, uh, that's how I got my, my start really at Marvel and uh, remained there for all those years. So I have a few uh, listener questions, which actually kind of are, that's kind of the perfect point to ask them. Um, sure. One specific was, uh, this is the, this is the question that takes a minute, but uh, it just says, you were an editor at Marvel for 30 years. You were present for a lot of key moments and changes over the years. You started out under Archie Goodwin and were a full editor under Shooter, DeFalco, Harris, and Quesada. What was yeah. it like being one of Marvel's longest serving editors and seeing all of the changes over that time, both in the comics themselves and in the turnover of personnel at Marvel? What was it like? Well, all right, let me, let me correct one thing. I was actually a full-time editor for 35 years. Um, I, I want to I get that straight. You want to throw those extra five years in there? Absolutely. <laughs> you earned them. <laughs> um, it, was, it was really fantastic um, and, and had its ups and downs to work for so many different people, to have gone through so many periods um, where when I think back on it, when I started during the 70s, the initial blush of the whole Marvel explosion during the 1960s had kind of worn off, and sales were down at that point. Um, things, were, you know, Marvel was experimenting with different things. We were doing the black and white magazines. You know, Kirby had just come back, and he was doing his things. And there seemed to be more of an emphasis, really, on some of the wackier stuff that was being done, Howard the Duck, Man-Thing some of the other books. Um, 
and and you know Spider-Man and Fantastic Four weren't quite the um, uh, the, the the game changers that they were during the 1960s. People were kind of branching out and looking at some of these other books, um, but we didn't. The sales were kind of you know trailing off. This was before there was a direct market. We were still dealing with newsstands back then, and the newsstand market was hurting. Um, this was before, you know, Phil Suling came in with his life-saving thing of, uh, you know, helping out with uh, getting the direct market going, etc. And I remember that, you know, under Archie, we were kind of using up inventory and a lot of things because, you know, there was a thought that this was not really going to last long. You know, people used to tell me, well, you know, Ralph, you kind of hitched your horse to a, a falling star. Um, comics may not be around in the form that you want much longer. You know, they may go on to television or whatever, uh, you know, but, but actual comic books seem to be dying. Um, I remember at one point being with Don McGregor, hanging out with him and going over to Rich Buckler's place, because at that point Rich Buckler was drawing Black Panther, and they were both complaining about the fact that a quarter of an inch had been cut from the books and the, the paper quality was getting thinner and thinner. You could almost see one side or the other side of a page when you opened a comic if you didn't keep the pages flat. And Don McGregor, I remember at one point, told me he picked up a comic book the other day and it fell apart in his hands. And I, I went to, boy, did I, did I do the wrong thing? Should I have considered, you know, keep pursuing the whole thing of uh, uh, teaching or whatever. And then direct market came in. Things began to, to change a little bit. We started to get a kind of an uplift. Um, they were, uh, we started to move in other directions, too. We got some toy properties, you know, Micronauts, ROM, whatever. Things began to, to fill out a bit. And Okay, now we were moving in another direction. It didn't look like we were going to close up shop. Uh, you know, we started to do Epic Magazine. We were, we were doing some of these other things, um, Warriors of the Shadow Realm that I was involved in, uh, the, the gigantic weird world stuff. And I started to get a feeling of relief. But then in the 90s, um, you know, things changed again. Now, you had this major competition um, from Image Comics, and they were doing these fantastic things with coloring and all that. And, you know, we, you'd look at Marvel's books back then, and I was on staff, of course, and we were going, gee, they're kind of beating us out in that department. So, you know, we were still doing hand coloring, and they went to the computer coloring and the computer lettering, and the books were you know, looking really spiffy. So I, I, never, I never thought that they were actually going to dominate the market because I didn't think the characters really had the depth that the Marvel characters were, and I always felt, had rather, and I always felt that the character will out in the end. But um, it was a real, you know, real challenge. And then, you know, you, you kind of had this, this sense that, um, okay, we're going for, you know, a fast buck. You had the death of Superman, and you had Heroes Reborn and all. And it seemed like everything was a big, a big event, an explosion had to happen. And we weren't really paying that much attention to sort of monthly comics and to, and to what Stan had started, which was getting involved in characters' lives and following them. Now everything was sort of the big event. And you also got the sense that if you weren't doing the big event, the books were going to trail off. So, you know, there was another thing. Then we went into that period where Ron Perlman bought us, and we went into bankruptcy. Now, that was not because of the sale. That was because he was actually, you know, taking some of the money from uh, what he was making at Marvel, and he was using it to sort of prop up some of his other companies. So it wasn't because the books were failing, but, but that, we were in bankruptcy. And so, again, there was this, you know, feelings. There were days that I came in, and I really didn't know whether or not the doors were going to be boarded up when I came in. We went through a succession 
of presidents, uh, of people who went from, you know, one uh, Ron Perlman or Carl Icahn or somebody else that came in, and you didn't know who was running the place from day to day, not the editor-in-chief level, but above that, the, the vice presidents, the actual um, owners. You know, there was a tug of war uh, between Ike Perlmutter and um, uh, Carl Icahn, and before that, um, uh, Ron Perlman. You know, what was going on here? Um, so, yes, we, we definitely had these ups and downs where you didn't know what was going to happen. There were rumors that the company was going to sell off the comic properties, and maybe not all of them were going to go to one person, but maybe several companies would take several of the comics, and the Marvel Universe would then become fractured. But I have to say that one thing that was always in the back of my mind, I always believed in these characters. I always felt that there was genius behind their creation. And I never really felt in my, my heart of hearts that it was ever really going to go away, that no matter how bad the financial situation got, that no matter how bad things went, that somehow the Marvel Universe was not going to survive intact. Somehow it was going to make it. And I always went to work with that feeling. There was always the surface jitters, you know, the nervousness. We went through, you know, Marvel Cution, where two-thirds of the staff was let go, too. Mm -hmm. uh, I was very lucky to have survived all of those things. And I have to tell you, people have asked me, how did you survive all those, you know, <laughs> cancellations? You know, all those people were fired at Marvel, and you weren't, and you survived all that. And my answer, which may sound flippant, but is absolutely true, is you would have to ask the people who didn't fire me. Because I didn't do anything special to stay on staff. I just went, put my head down, and did my work. So why I wasn't let go, um, as I say, you'd have to ask the people who were in a position to let me go why they didn't. But um, we did go through so many, so many ups and downs. And having been there from the 70s, you know, right on through um, till around 2011, uh, and then you have the period which we're really in now, where the brand name of Marvel has become the biggest thing in popular culture, maybe the biggest thing ever in popular culture. And who would have believed that, you know, the, the, the 10 cent, 12 cent Avengers comic book would eventually one day be turned into a, you know, one and a half, maybe two billion dollar movie. That, that, that franchise, that, that template that Stan set up where you would introduce the characters individually, Hulk, Ant-Man, Thor, Iron Man, and then you team them up in a book. That they did that, that template was followed in the films. And they, you know, everybody's admitted it. Sure, that's just what we did. We introduced the characters separately in the movies, and we put them together in the Avengers. And it worked. And Marvel has now become the most gigantic thing in popular culture. I mean, I can't go anywhere. If people recognize my name, they want to know all about the comics. They want to know all about the movies. It's become an incredible thing. Nobody hides reading a comic book anymore. Everybody now, it's like a badge of honor mm -hmm. to work for Marvel or to, to show that you, you're a comic book reader, you know? And... I accept now that we are in a golden age, really, that we're in a very up period, even though the sales are not what they were, you know, during the 50s or 60s. There's still the brand that has become a worldwide brand now, that more and more people around the world are aware of these characters, and that they've become so embedded, both in American and world culture, that... You know, we can never really go back. That it, it, It's just in there now. It's just embedded in it. So, yes, it's been an incredible experience and one I wouldn't have traded 
for anything else because I can't think of any other field I would have been in that would have had these ups and downs where in one minute you're hanging on by your fingernails <laughs> and the next minute you're doing billion dollar movies. Yeah, no, that's yeah, that's it's an amazing tenure, as you said. Like it, you, you, you've you got to experience so many different periods of the comic book industry through the you know kind of the prism of Marvel and Marvel its owns up and downs. It is incredible. Yes, absolutely. I, I make no uh, no points about it. it. It has been an incredible ride and one that I've loved from beginning to end. So this is a bit of a, a could be a tough one, but uh, who is the the best hire you ever made on a title? I would probably have to say now again this this does not reflect my favorite you know book or my favorite person to work with, mm. but I think probably the most meaningful, and I say this in the sense that the one that probably had the greatest impact on the industry was asking Frank Miller to come back and do Born Again. Mm. Because I think that that was probably the precursor to him, and I think he's even said this in interviews, that really, had he not done Born Again, um, he would not have been prepared to do Batman Year One or, or Dark Knight, whatever. So, to me, calling up Frank and asking him to come back onto that probably has had a greater impact on the industry than I guess anything else that I've done. So I would say that that probably was my most important hire. Now, I worked with Frank. I worked with on Daredevil for many, many years. I absolutely loved Daredevil. Um, and I worked as Denny O'Neill's assistant, uh, I think, starting out. And uh, I remember when Frank first came up to Marvel, you know, first day, walking around with his portfolio and everything like that, just a, you know, guy from Vermont. And he came down, and I remember when, uh, you know, he got put on Daredevil, not as the writer, but as the penciler, um, with uh, Roger McKenzie as the writer. And eventually, um, he took over the writing and art on the book with Klaus Janssen, uh, you know, working uh, hand in glove with him, doing brilliant stuff. And... You know, you could just sense at that time that everybody was reading Daredevil. Everybody. You know, they just loved it. And then when Frank, you know, was finished with his with his run on Daredevil, he went off and, you know, did his other stuff. And I took over Daredevil. And, um, you know, I, I remember that uh, Denny was on it for a while, and then Denny O'Neill left. And then I was looking for somebody else to take over the book. David Mazzucchelli was my artist on it, and David was doing phenomenal stuff. And I loved Denny's run on it, too. I thought Denny was, was ideally suited to write Daredevil. And I just called Frank up out of the blue. I said, you know what? I know that Frank had more Daredevil stories to tell. So I called him up, and I said, Frank, how'd you like to come back and, you know, just jump onto Daredevil again? Stay as long as you want. I know you got more stories. And he said, ah, let me think about it, Ralph. So it didn't take him very long, but... He called me back, and he said he had a story he wanted to do. And uh, he had asked me whether he, he thought David Mazzucchelli might might worry about working over full scripts or whatever. And I said, no, nope, not a chance, because that's what he gets from Denny. I said, so I think I think David would love to work with you. And that's how we got uh, born again. So uh, I think that that was probably my most important hire in the sense that it had, I guess, more of a subsequent impact on the industry maybe than anything else I've done. Wow. I mean, obviously, Warnigan is, you know, one of the most seminal Daredevil stories, too. So when you start getting those scripts from Frank, like, what was your take on it? Like, was there, did you have any kind of notes for him, or, or did it kind of come kind of fully birthed as, as what we know? Like, or how much, was there any kind of give and take on kind of developing what Warnigan ended up becoming? 
You know, uh, it, it's interesting. When you work with people of a caliber of a Frank Miller or Walt Simonson, that people tend to think you just, you know, get out of their way and, and you don't say a word and all that. It was never that way with guys of that caliber. They would always ask for feedback. When I worked with Frank, he didn't just... You know, turn in a script and think, okay, you know, I'm, I'm Frank Miller now, and nobody's going to touch this. I always went through the scripts with him, and he always asked for feedback. I think guys of that level were always smart enough to know that another pair of eyes and, a, and another, you know, um, another opinion always would be helpful. And uh, I, I don't think that I added anything to Born Again. I can't think of any specific instance that I said, okay, Frank, do this, and he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. But I do remember him always asking for my opinion. But I thought the stuff was so good that I just said, yeah, you know, just go with it. But if I wanted to edit something on there, I could have edited it, you know. It was just a case where he was just, he knew exactly what he wanted to do, and it was so on point that there really wasn't a question that, you know, what he did, it, it all went into print. I will tell you one thing, though. We also did Man Without Fear which he did with John Romita Jr., which originally had been intended as a screenplay. Mm. And I guess when uh, Frank had decided that he was going to do something else or, you know, wasn't, wasn't going over as a screenplay, whatever, then he decided to do it as, um, you know, as this six-issue prestige project, and I loved that too. But that's the one place that I had a little bit of a disagreement with him on something um, because I, I didn't think that Daredevil should actively kill someone. But, but you know, in retrospect... Now it seems to be okay because there, you know, really was very difficult for him to to have gotten out of the situation unless he'd done this. There was a sequence where this thug, and this was going back to Daredevil's origin, where Daredevil was reflecting some bullets with his billy club. He was knocking these bullets at this guy who was firing him. This guy was holding a woman that he was going to kill, and then he was firing the gun at Daredevil, who at that time wasn't yet Daredevil. He was still just a guy in a turtleneck and a mask because <laughs> we were going back to his early years in college. And he says, don't make me kill you. And he kept deflecting the bullets. But the guy kept firing him. So at one point, he deflects a bullet into the guy's forehead, and the, the guy dies. And I remember calling Frank going, you know, Frank, I just am not sure I buy this idea that he would kill him and all that. And, you know, Frank actually rewrote that sequence that he states in there that he really didn't have a choice, that he just, you know, the guy was continuing to fire, and he just did it. But what happened was, after Frank rewrote that, and I know he did it even even not liking doing it because it really slowed the action down, whatever, I brought it into the bullpen to get lettered. And I remember some of the guys in the bullpen looking at it and going, Ralph, we have to tell you, this doesn't quite ring true because they had been reading it as, as I brought it in to be lettered. You know, if, we, if uh, they'd all been picking up the, the, the lettered pages and, and looking at it because everybody was anxious to see it. And when I brought this page in because it was, you know, after most of the rest of the book had been done, there was this kind of general, eh, it doesn't seem to ring true. And that's when I realized that I was wrong. You know, maybe my instincts were right about it, but trying to get Frank to write some kind of captions that, you know, really his heart wasn't in it and all. I went back to him and I, I called him up and I said, you know, Frank, leave it out. It's okay. Uh, well, you know, I, I get it. And, and that there was probably, you know, no reason that, that he, you know, there was a good reason why he had to do this. So we'll just leave it alone. And I, I really took my cue from the guys in the bullpen because if it wasn't ringing true to them. I was almost letting them kind of edit it, you know, going, okay, it's not working for you guys. Uh, so that, that, 
was the one place I think I had a disagreement with Frank. But almost everything, we were, we were very simpatico on Daredevil. I mean, he knew the character backwards and forwards. He added so much to the, to the legend of Matt Murdock without contradicting anything, you know, putting stick in there and Electra and all, which enhanced the background of the character. Absolutely. That I just, um, you know, I just loved it. And, of course, all those elements that he put in there are still active in the character today. So, um, but that was, that was really the one point that I, I had, had a bit of a disagreement with him. Oh, of course, in the, the addition of the Kingpin, you know, from the Spider-Man books over to, to Daredevil was just uh, another stroke of brilliance. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, it brings up a question. So when Born Again is kind of ending, was yeah. was that the only story that Frank wanted to tell, and then you just had to kind of move on from there? Or obviously the door would have been open, I guess, for him to do anything else he wanted to do. So was that just kind of the story he wanted to tell, and he was ready to get out? Yes, that was the story that he wanted to tell. Um, he he had you know he had done it, and um, you know there were, the door was certainly open for him to come back and to do anything else that he wanted on the character. But I know you know he he was really he was really an artist, and I think that uh, that he had other Daredevil stories. Remember, he also had done. Um, the Electra book with Bill Sienkiewicz. They also did a Kingpin story, he and Bill Sienkiewicz, that was supposed to be a two-parter um, in Daredevil. But it turned out, I think when Jim Shooter saw the art on it, uh, he was so taken with it that he wanted to do it as a special story. So those were additional things that Frank actually did. And there was also um, something that Frank did that never really got finished, um, which was a two-parter that he had written, which initially... Um, Walt Simonson was going to do, but Frank only really did the first part, and then he did, he got busy on other stuff. And there's still only that first part that had been done. The second part has not been done yet. And I forget, I think it may have been called the Devil's Own or something like that. I think, but that's that's kind of an unfinished Frank Miller masterpiece on Daredevil, and I've never been able to get him to to do part two on that. So there were more stories that he did tell or wanted to tell with Daredevil, but I think after Born Again, you know, he kind of had set up the status quo for Matt Murdock as the, the guardian of Hell's Kitchen, and that really has kind of persisted till today. And I have to say, that was probably one other small area of disagreement. I never really thought that, that Matt Murdock, or rather that Daredevil, should just sort of limit himself to uh, Hell's Kitchen or Clinton, as it's called. But I always, I always kind of envisioned that, you know, the whole city was really his... Um, his domain. So when future writers came on the book, I told them, you don't really have to be bound by that. He can, you know, he can certainly deal with uh, the stilt man, you know, downtown. He doesn't have to be just in Hell's Kitchen. But, um, but yes, certainly the door was always open for Frank to do other stuff. Now this is a, a listener question, so some of what he references may not actually be correct, and you can correct, uh, sure. correct it afterwards. He just says, uh, after Born Again, Daredevil had a number of fill-in writers before Steve Englehart was supposed to have taken over. Famously, Anne Nascenti's story caused Englehart to change his mind, and Nascenti ended up getting the book starting with 238. Was she intended to be the permanent writer at that point, and how did that decision come about? You know, that's... Um I have to say that's one of those things that was kind of that's kind of hazy in retrospect. I remember that yes, um, Steve, who also um, I, I counted as a good friend, and, and also I was a big fan of his work too. I loved his Captain America, his Doctor Strange, his Avengers, uh, and I was anxious to work with him on Daredevil. But what happened was. Um, there, there had been some, uh, Anne came on and she wound up working, I think, maybe with Art Adams and Barry Smith did a couple of issues in there, and um, they went over very well. But then Steve was going to come on the book, 
and it, we had some sort of a creative disagreement, and I, 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 I remember that it, it caused a bit of a rift, and I was always a little sorry that that happened. What it was exactly, I don't remember after all this time, but there was a, a bit of a, a problem, and I think Steve backed out of the project at that point, and I went back to Anne, and um, she, you know, took over it at that point. But initially, I'll tell you, after Frank on that book, I did have a bit of a problem um, finding another writer because people didn't want to be in Frank Miller's shadow. And everybody who had read Daredevil from Frank's initial run on it right through Born Again were going, you know, how do we top this? We're just going to be in this guy's shadow. So there was a lot of fear among a lot of writers that I spoke to that, you know, we don't want to touch this thing because what can we do to follow up on this? It's all going to be an anticlimax. I never thought that, but I could understand a writer's fear. You know, it's like coming on a book after Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. It's not the easiest thing in the world. Now, the interesting thing about Anne was Anne was not really from comic books. She answered an ad in the paper, really, to come on to, uh, to staff at Marvel. She was not a, a comic book geek by any means. And so it wasn't that fearful a thing for her to come on. But Anne was very, very talented. She brought a, she brought a lot to the, to the table from outside of comics. Um, and I thought that was wonderful. Uh, so when I spoke to her about it, she you know, jumped on without a moment's hesitation. And I will have to tell you that I was as proud of her run with John Romita Jr. on there and the, the couple they did with, I think she did with, uh, I think it was Art Adams and, and a few with Barry Smith and all. She introduced some wild villains like Rock Gut and some other characters in there. I thought that stuff was just brilliant in a very different way than what Frank brought to the table. And when she became the regular writer on it and she worked with John Romita Jr., who John himself has admitted in interviews that that's the book on which he really became the artist that everybody knew him as, that he really came into his own on Daredevil, I was just as proud of their run on it as I was as uh, as I was of Frank's run. Okay. Uh, this is a little bit of a, a different... This isn't about Daredevil anymore, but it's another listener question, and it definitely dovetails into some of my interest as well. Um, sure. This specific question was, uh, when you were collaborating with Mark Gruenwald, what was the division of labor in writing the stories? Okay, now... Um, Mark Grunewald was an incredibly creative guy. You know, his, his, his mind was just all over the place. And, uh, you know, he was just a wonderful guy to work with. Uh, Mark and I um, were both real Marvel geeks. I mean, we just loved Marvel from top to bottom. And we both had a similar interest in the cosmic end of Marvel Comics. We were, we just wanted it all to make sense. You know, Mark had this book um, that, that he used to work on with his father before he came to Marvel. I think it was called uh, Omniverse or something like that. And he just wanted to make all the fictional universes cohesive and all fit together. And he was also a huge DC Comics geek, too. Um, and when we got together, um, I remember that, that he had come to New York um, from Wisconsin, and I helped him get his job up at Marvel, because I was on staff before he was. And he was working in a bank at that time, I think, and he was just dying there. And he, he you know, came in and he wanted to get on staff, and I did what I could you know, to, to talk to Jim to help get him on staff. And then we you know, just gravitated together as friends, and you know, later on, uh, during his time in Marvel as, as the uh, as an editor, Mark kind of became the heart and soul of, of Marvel at that point. You know, all of the crazy things that were done at conventions and up in the office, all the parties and things, they were all Mark Grunewald-centric. You know, they all originated with Mark. He was just a wonderful guy. And when we collaborated, 
you know, we would, we would sit down and we would just toss ideas back and forth. Maybe I'd come up with something. Maybe Mark would come up with something. Um, for example, on the Project Pegasus stuff on Marvel 2 and 1 that we were sort of known for, I came up with Project Pegasus. And I did a two-issue stint on it, which I'd written on my own. And that was it. You know, I did it for Roger Stern on 2 and 1, and he was happy with it. And the book went back, and, you know, they did other stuff. And then a few weeks later, Mark Grumold, who had read it, he came back to me with a six-part Project Pegasus storyline, kind of mapped out in his head. And I said, wow, Mark, this is great. I, he goes, yeah, I loved your Project Pegasus thing, and I got this idea for all. I said, that's fantastic. So we were off to the races, and um, with Mark's blueprint there, we did the six-part Project Pegasus thing. Now, when we were writing it, there were certain parts of the book that he was more interested in than I was and parts that I was more interested in. So when it came like to the Thundra stuff, I probably wrote more of the Thundra stuff. When it came to the Aquarian, Mark wrote more of the Aquarian stuff. When it came to the Thing, we would alternate. Uh, with the guest star, for example, with, uh, with Quasar, uh, Mark, I think, had more of an affinity for Quasar than I did. But when it came to the Giant Man stuff later, I probably wrote those. But ultimately... We would each look at each other's script before we would send it into the editor at that time. I think it was Jim Salakrup or uh, maybe Roger Stern. And we did the same thing on Thor. We started working with Roy kind of as his uh, as assistants to Roy on Thor. And I remember after 299, Roy left. And he didn't leave us with anything. He kind of left, you know, with nothing. And I remember Mark coming to me going, Ralph, we got to plot Thor 300 because... <laughs> There was nothing. We didn't have a Thor 300, and this was to be the big concluding chapter. We had to end the big thing with the Celestials having their judgment on Earth and the Ring of the Nibelung story that Roy had running in there. We had to do all of this stuff. So, you know, um, Mark and I tossed ideas back and forth, what we wanted to do. Mark went off and wrote up a kind of an outline for it. I thought it was terrific. I added my bits to it. And then as we sent it off to Keith Polly, naturally we sent it past the editor, but on Thor 300, which was a book that most people seem to have liked and, and seems to become pretty memorable to Thor fans, I remember as we were doing the book and the artwork started to come in, I remember mentioning to Mark, I said, you know, Mark, we just don't have enough pages to make this thing cosmic in scope. I said, we've got so much stuff, this whole thor Arishim battle. There are, there are you know, shots I want to do in there of Arishim's hand coming down on Thor and, and all this stuff. So what we did without telling the editor was we added pages to it. Because we didn't think that they, we didn't think the editor would let us do it, and if and if a writer did that to me today, I'd be pretty upset about it. But we wound up just going to Keith Pollard on our own, saying, "Here, Keith, here's five more pages to do. Just don't tell anybody. Just so we got all the stuff in there we wanted, but a lot of that stuff wasn't supposed to have been in there. It was not in the initial plot. We just expanded sequences because we wanted to really make it cosmic. And, you know, Jim Salakrup, you know, later on, he was, he was very nice about it. Jim was a terrific editor, and uh, he, he let it slide. Once he realized he had a lot more pages to publish that issue than he intended, he was okay with it. And we told him why we did it, and he was a good guy. So we, uh, we did it, and then we wound up staying on Thor for a while. Uh, Mark and I. You know, we had other things to do. 301 kind of finished up the plot lines in there from 300, and we thought, yeah, we'll have some fun with Thor, because we, we both, you know, Thor touched on the cosmic aspect of things, and we played around with Thor for for a bit. But we always were very collaborative. Um, I've mentioned this in, in um, introductions, things that I've wrote. 
a lot of times with, with collaborations, um, and, and this seems to be true, I think, in their rock music and maybe even in comics and stuff, uh, there tend to be, tends to be friction over time where people kind of want to go their own way and it's almost as if the guy they're collaborating with becomes almost an impediment. And you, you, know, you hear about these things. Oh, these guys aren't getting along now. You know, he wants to do this with the book and this guy wants to do that. Or, you know, it's true in rock music all the time. You, you wonder how some of these groups stayed together because you hear about nothing but friction behind the scenes. You know, they, they, didn't want to, they didn't want to stay together anymore, but they did it just for this album or whatever. Well, Mark and I never had that. We always were on the same page with what we wanted to do. We always fed each other's obsessions or wants and desires on a comic. So when we weren't working together, we sometimes would talk to each other about things. And when I edited Mark on Captain America, it was almost like we were working together again as, as co-writers on that. Um, I would feed Mark an idea. I'd say, hey, Mark, you know, I've always wondered what would happen if Captain America lost the super soldier serum. You know, what would it be like? I said, because if you think about it, he's kind of a steroid guy. You know, he, he's kind of got pumped up on a steroid. I said, well, so what would happen if it drained out of him? How, would he still be Captain America? Mark loved the idea, and we got Streets of Poison. And I mentioned uh, we talked about Bloodstone. Um, who I had sort of co-created with uh, John Warner back on staff at one point. And I thought, hey, why don't we do something with Bloodstone? And Mark loved the Bloodstone thing. And so, we, you know, we got the Bloodstone saga. So all that stuff, we always were simpatico. And, and there was never a sense of jealousy that, hey, you know, I came up with that. You didn't. I came up with that. No, 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 I didn't. We shared... We were, we were happy to work with each other. There was never a sense of, of jealousy or, a, or a, a, you know, an, a, a bad note between us from beginning to end, whether it was writer to editor or as co-writers. It, he was just a wonderful, wonderful collaborative partner to work with, and uh, it was, it was a, such a loss to the comic book industry and to me personally uh, when, when Mark died at such a young age. How how different? This is conjecture, but like, how different do you think the last twenty, you know, two years in the comic book industry would have been if he hadn't passed away? I think the landscape would have been different. I think that that Mark would at one point have become editor in chief, um, and I think that the business. Marvel, anyway, would have gone in a somewhat different direction. Whether it would have been as successful, I don't know. I can't say. But I can certainly tell you that um, it would have been very interesting to see what Mark would have done had he been fully in charge of Marvel. And I do think it would have been something very interesting and very different than, you know, than, than what, had, uh, what has occurred. What has occurred, actually, has been pretty fantastic, but I think Mark would have taken it in a, in a different direction that would have been equally fantastic and, and phenomenal. What it was, I've, I have to tell you, I've often speculated on it. I've often wondered, you know, I just recently did a, uh, an introduction again to uh, yet another reprint of the Project Pegasus story, and I said, you know, um, I wonder what Mark would have thought about uh, Project Pegasus being reprinted when we initially wrote it like in 1978, 79, and, you know, here it is so many years later, I can't even count it, and it's being reprinted yet again. And I said, I think if Mark were still around, he and I would be working on something even now at Marvel, because our, you know, our love for Marvel and all that just uh, wouldn't, have, wouldn't have passed with age, and uh, we'd still be doing something together. What's your favorite real-life Mark Grunewald story? Uh, you know, it, it, it's tough to say because I, I would have to I would have to say 
the way, and, and this is, it's not so much a funny story, but it's, a, it's just an interesting thing about the way Mark worked. When, when we would do um, the um, Halloween parties, Mark would, would set up, I mean, he would work with Mike Carlin and, and Elliot Brown and those guys up there. And when it came time for Halloween, they just went to all kinds of lengths. Mark set up his office um, with with this kind of like a like it was a labyrinth that you had to walk through, almost as if it was sort of a like a little house of horrors. And they went to this incredible length. They put Excelsior all over the place, and they built things and designed stuff. And they had um, dry ice in there, so you got a as soon as you opened the door, you were surrounded by mist, <laughs> and you walked through the office, and it was just incredible, just the way he had set things up. And they had all these games and crazy things going on there, and. It was just—it was just something that no one else would have done but Mark. You know, we might have had a Halloween party, we might have had a Christmas party, you know, but it would not have gone to the extent that it was with Mark. You know, he just took everything to the to the extremes and to a fun extreme. Um, there was—I would say—one of the, one of the fun things didn't happen to me, but actually happened to Tom DeFalco. Was um, Mark knew that Tom DeFalco? was going to um, go on a trip. So uh, I, I think somehow Mark got access to Tom's um, suitcase and, and knew that, you know, it would have to go through the x-ray machine and all that. So they made, <laughs> they made a phony gun out of soap and put the, put the gun inside the suitcase so that it would show up at <laughs> the x-ray machine. <laughs> so Tom, of course, got stopped halfway through, and they, had to, they went through all of his... They went through all of his stuff to, because they found this this gun <laughs> soap in there, and it was just something that Mark did that you know nobody else would have thought of. That that it was just uh, just crazy stuff. I do remember too. Also, at one point, they decorated Carl Potts's office with all these Michelle Marsh posters. Um, that was something that that went on uh, back when Michelle Marsh it was it was if it in, if it involves you, it involves us. She was a CBS. Um, CBS co-anchor at one time and they just started to steal all of these Michelle Marsh posters from subways um, I wasn't involved in that because I didn't take the subways but I remember they would show up every day him and Mike Carlin with another dozen Michelle Marsh posters and then they would cut out the Michelle Marsh heads from some of the posters and they did a, a, a video shoot where everybody in the office wore these Michelle Marsh faces and it was almost like out of the twilight zone because you suddenly had this video of everybody in the office. We crammed 30 people into the office and every one of us had on a Michelle Marsh face and it was just wild. But it was the kind of crazy stuff that only Mark would do and it, it just made working at Marvel that much more fun. Even during the bad periods, when Mark was up there, it was just a lot of fun. There was always something crazy going on and he was behind it. Um, now I, I've heard that you're you've been a, a bit of a practical joker as well over the years. Do you have any particular jokes that you really enjoyed during during your time well, there? I, I have to tell you, I don't want to say anything about them because most of them nobody knew who did them. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to get myself in trouble with anybody who goes, "Hey, wait a minute, you were the guy that you know." There were some crazy things that, that you know that we did do. I do remember one that I did um, with with Carl Potts one time where we had. Um, uh, Carl was was a big fisherman, and uh, even though he used to throw the fish back, he loved to fish. And he brought his fishing rod into the office one day, and I happened to have this notepad that on the other side was like hundred dollar bill. So we 
took off a couple of $100 bills, and they looked very authentic. And we put them on the end of his fishing pole. And now we were like 10 stories, seven stories up, I think, in this building we're at on Park Avenue and 23rd Street. And out the window we went, and we went all the way down with this fishing pole and let it lay on the ground. Now, you couldn't really see the pole because it was very thin, or the fishing line you couldn't see. But there was a $100 bill attached to it. And so people would come out of the building at the back, and we would would look out the window, and they would see a $100 bill in the street. And as soon as they would go for it, we would jerk up the pole. (laughs) And the the $100 bill would be floating in the air, and people would be making a grab for it. And suddenly you'd have a crowd trying to grab this $100 bill. Well, somebody contacted, we did this enough times that somebody contacted the superintendent of the building, and he contacted Mike Hobson, who at the time was the publisher, and said, somebody in your office is $100 bills, they're floating out the window, cut it out, we're getting a crowd on the street, what's going on? So at the time, I was doing this with Carl Potts, but I happened to have gotten a phone call just at the moment that Mike Hobson came in to yell at us for it. And I happened to be on the phone and Carl still had the fishing pole out the window. So uh, Mike Hobson came in and he looked at both of us and I went very innocently, I just pointed at myself and I went, well, I don't know what he's doing. And I pointed to the cars. I just came in here and put this pole in. <laughs> so I sold him up the river on that one. <laughs> him years to forgive me for it, but, but Carl is a good buddy and he knows about it, so I don't, I don't mind mentioning that one, but yes, there were some, um, there were some pretty funny, uh, there, I have to tell you, there, there was a, a practical joke, I, I got Mark into skiing, and we went uh, on a ski trip one time, and um, we went with Glenn Hurdling, who also was a, a Marvel guy, and we rented a small chalet. And I saw, I was sitting in the living room, we were at his place, and uh, we were at, uh, in, um, uh, what's his name, uh, uh, guy I just mentioned, not, not Mark, the, the other guy that I mentioned. Uh, Glenn? Uh, we, uh, yes, yes, Glenn Hurling. We were in his, his little chalet, and I saw him and Mark talking, and I'm watching television, and they went into the bathroom for some reason, and I said, you know, these guys are pulling a prank, I know it. So I went into the bathroom. I had to use the bathroom, and I went in there, and I looked around, and I said, I know they did something in here. I didn't know what it was, but they pulled something. And then I looked at the toilet paper, and I noticed there's something funny looking about the toilet paper. It's very shiny. And what they'd done was they put this kind of vinyl toilet paper in there. It looked like real toilet paper, but if you tried to pull it off the roll, you couldn't pull it off the roll. It was impossible because it was vinyl. (laughs) So I said, aha. They thought I was going to use this. So what I did was I took the roll off and I put the other roll back on and I never said anything about it. And I took it with me and I put it in my suitcase. And when we got back to Marvel, I put it in one of the stalls in Marvel. And what was funny about it was somebody went into the stall, of course, I put it in the middle stall, and somebody went in there. And Glenn Hurdling happened to have been in the bathroom at the time. Somebody goes, hey, I can't get this toilet paper off. You've got to help me with this. So they rolled him another thing in there. And Glenn Hurdling went in there, and it was that roll of toilet paper. And he came back to the office, and he could barely walk. He was laughing so hard. And he says, Ralph, you did that, didn't you? And I said, yeah, I, I did. I took it back to Marvel, and I put it in the store. <laughs> so that was, that was kind of a prank they tried to pull on me. But I, I sort of reversed the process and, uh, and did it. So, but there were 
were a million things like that. There were just a million things like that. We would we would loosen loosen something on somebody's um, when they weren't in the office. We would loosen a bulb or something and, and loosen a lamp so that when they tried to turn it on, the lamp would fall apart. Or we would do something on a, on somebody's chair so that the whole chair would collapse when they sat in it. Or I remember one time, um, Mark, uh, they they did one of these these silly things with with the fart noises, and they attached it to my chair in the office because I knew I was they knew I was going to be interviewing somebody that afternoon. But they had a remote button in there, so when I was talking to somebody, all of a sudden you'd hear this sound that was coming from under my chair, <laughs> and it was you know it was funny, but. It was. It was just. Uh, those are the kind of goofy things we did. Now, the more I talk about this, the more I'm going to remember them. So we better stop. Okay. Um, one thing I, I've, I've heard about, and I just wanted to see if you could elaborate a bit, is that I've heard about your that you kind of had a, a legendary wall of shame in your office. Yes, I had a door, and the door was my opportunity to kind of, sort of comically, but there's a lot of truth in jest, as they say, to kind of comically. Um, poke fun at what was going on in the industry and in our books at the time and to sort of play around with things um, up there. So, you know, I would put up there when somebody, for example, after Jim Shooter had left and, and uh, wound up starting Valiant, you know, um, we kind of, some of us didn't like the idea that people would, you know, work at Valiant at that time. We thought, hey, come on, they're, they're trying to take us down. So I had a, like a, I had like a, a wall of shame where I had everybody's name on there, worked for Valiant, and we would put these things afterwards. And I would just put up, if a comic book was really bad, you know, I would put it up there, and I, maybe we would turn it upside down, the cover, or we would mess with the cover or something like that. Um, and, you know, we would, just, we would just goof around with all kinds of things in there. I remember there was a, a cover one time um, for, for something, uh, I think one of the Tom DeFalco's uh, Thunderstrike books, which actually I was I was editing at the time, and I, I put it up there, and it was called the you know the thing at the bottom of the the lake. That was the title. Well, I changed it to the thing at the bottom of the sales, and it, we just you know we just went on and on. I would you know I would I would change sales figures to make it look like something wasn't selling well, but actually it was, and. Um, I had a hall of failed presidents because, you know, there was a period of time, like I said, where we would have one guy after another would come in. So I set my whole door up where we would just have about, you know, this president and how long he lasted. And we would make all these comments about him on there. And then I had your name next. And I remember Bill Jemis had taken over and I got along very well with Bill. And he came in and he saw the door. And he saw all these guys before him up there, and he looked and he goes, you're just waiting for me to go next, right? You're just going to buy. I said, no, Bill. I said, you've been good. You've been good. Don't worry. You're not going up there. You're okay. You're okay in my book. <laughs> so he was, he was a good sport about it. But that's, that was sort of the legendary hall of, fame, uh, the, uh, hall of shame. People would come by to see if their book was up there or if something about them was up there and all. It was all done in good fun, but, you know, as I say, there was a lot of truth in jest. Some of it could be a little, a little biting or a little cutting. Um, um, one thing we had up there when um, when Rob Liefeld took over um, Captain America, you know, I was editing it at the time, and you know, they kind of took it out of my hands to do Heroes Reborn, and he had done a shot of Captain America, I remember, and it was called Unfinished Business. You know, like these the, the image guys, some of them were coming back to work on the Marvel stuff, so I put it up on the door, and I had underneath it, you know, Unfinished Business, life drawing, um, perspective, all kinds of things, you know, to make fun <laughs> of the shot. So this was called, that was the Unfinished Business. But again, it was all done in fun, and, um, you know, we, we just were, were poked, we poked 
fun at ourselves as much as we poked fun at anybody else. But that was the kind of stuff that would wind up on the door. And it was up there for years and years and years. Now, when you, this is kind of more of a retrospective question, but when you kind of start working at Marvel in the 70s, um, of all the, you know, the, the, the creative types that you got to meet at the time and, you know, kind of the, the old guard that you got to work with and the people whose work you'd read when you were younger, um, which ones or which of the personalities or the people that you got to meet would have been most exciting for, you know, little Ralph back when you were first getting into, you know, Marvel Comics? Which one was the biggest deal for you as, you know, originally a fan, now being able to actually be a contemporary and actually meet these people? I would have to say, uh, certainly at the top of the list would be Stan, um, because Stan, when I started, was still, had a big office up at Marvel. I mean, he had not yet moved to the West Coast. So Stan Lee was, you know, a big thing. I mean, this, you know, when Stan walked down the hall, this, this was a legendary figure. And I remember at one point, I was working on something up at Marvel, and I was in the, I was in the bullpen doing something, and I, I, I'd been hired as an assistant and all. And Stan, you know, he, he knew my name. He knew people's names, you know, and he was, he was kidding around with everybody. He was, he was very affable and amiable and, you know, didn't just like a big corporate guy hide in the office. He, he you know, made the rounds. And um, he saw me trying to do something with balloon placement, and he says, Ralph, hey, come with me. Come into my office. I want to show you something. So he sat down with me on the sofa in his office, and he showed me about balloon placement. And I realized I'm sitting there with Stan Lee, and he's showing me how to place balloons. And later on, we would have meetings with Stan when we were discussing things, when um, they were going to come up with Epic Illustrated magazine. And Stan was involved in those things. And if I was involved in it, we would be meeting with Stan. And so I'm going, you know, i got to pinch myself. I'm in a meeting with Stan Lee where we're talking about comics and books, and I'm seeing him be creative Stan Lee and all. And the other one that I would mention was Steve Ditko. Um, when I was editing some of the books up at Marvel, Steve Ditko, who you know, had long since left Doctor Strange and Spider-Man, he came on um, and he was doing, uh, was penciling, I think, Indiana Jones and a couple of other books. But I do remember some Indiana Jones books that he was doing. And I think I might have had David Michelini as the writer at the time. And um, I remember that Ditko would take the, the script or the plot, because back then I think most of the guys were doing the plots rather than the full scripts. And Ditko would take it, and a week later, you know, he would come in and he would have done the layouts. Rather than do the pencils first, he would lay out the entire book. You know, he would basically do what you'd call storyboards, you know, for a film. Hmm. So he came in the office, and I remember he would sit down with me, and he would have marked up the plot that David had done. And he would show me how he did each panel, and he would go through it, and I would see his notes on the side, and I'm going, this is Steve Ditko, one of the premier storytellers ever in comics, and he's showing me how he came to pencil this book this way, and it was an education like you couldn't believe, just like sitting with Stan or being in a meeting with Stan. It was an incredible education because I would see how he would solve what he may have deemed a problem in a story. And, you know, David Michelini, a, he's a good writer, he's a good storyteller. And Ditko would come in, and he would sit down and go, you know, I think maybe the transition was a little abrupt here, so I, I had a transition panel to get us through over here, um, and I did an upshot in this panel because I thought it would be more effective. And he did that for the whole book, and I just watched him do this 
book after book, and I'm going, I'm getting an education you couldn't pay for. <laughs> and that was the other thing that, you know, those two, I mean, again, I, you know, I also started with Archie Goodwin as editor-in-chief, and you couldn't do much better than that, because Archie also, you know, an ace writer and, and editor, you know, Archie strode both worlds like a colossus. So to watch Archie, you know, just uh, do his stuff and to talk to him about plots and things um, was also incredible. But yes, sitting with Stan um, and then going through all the stuff with Ditko and then later on becoming very friendly with Steve where I could call him up on the phone just to chat. Steve Ditko is a guy who never had an answering machine or whatever it was. You could just call him up at his studio. He'd pick it up on the second ring. Hello? And you'd be talking to Steve Ditko. And we would chat and we would, you know, go through. And I learned about so many things about his tenure on Doctor Strange and his tenure on Spider-Man and, and, you know, what was going through his mind at the time when he was working on those books. It was, again, encyclopedic. Um, but just sitting there watching him solve those problems or, or, or just, you know, figuring out how he was going to tell that story in the most exciting way possible. And really, you know, when it comes to storytelling, uh, you know, Ditko has few peers, really, if you, if you look at it. You look at those Spider-Mans that he did um, with Stan, and, and they just stand at the, you know, almost foremost among storytelling. Uh, it's just incredible what he did. But also uh, with Archie, uh, too. I, I remember going to Archie one time, um, and I, I remember, you know, there were some artists. Alex, um, um, not Alex, Alex Nino, um, Alex Toth. I remember looking at some of Alex Toth's stuff, and I remember hearing artists talk about him as such a genius. And, you know, I'm not an artist, but I'm a comic book guy, and I remember looking at Alex Toad's work, and I'm going, you know, I kind of get it, but I have to say, I don't really appreciate it as an artist. I don't quite understand what all the fuss is about. I mean, I get Kirby, and I can get Ditko, but I don't quite get what the thing is with Toth. And I went into Archie one day, because Archie had worked with Toth, and I remember showing him a, a Toth story that I had read somewhere. I don't remember, it may have been a DC, you know, enemy ace that he'd done or something, because I, I don't think he did much for Marvel. But I remember sitting down with him, I said, Archie, can you tell me what the thing is with Toth? I said, you work with him. What is it about this, this thing? I said, I just don't get it. And he sat there and he very patiently explained to me why Alex Toth was a genius. And I got it from that point on. I still have to tell you, I don't quite appreciate it viscerally, as I do Kirby, that hits me in the face, but I do now kind of understand in an intellectual way why Alex Toth was a genius. And I got it from another genius, Archie Goodman. So that was, you know, meeting those guys or being able to, do, also working with John Buscema, um, I have to tell you, was, was uh, you know, and I worked with so many of the great guys, but working with John, too, because John was an artist. artist. I remember that John, every once in a while, would come into Marvel, and he would do sort of a chalk talk. And you would have people that would come in from all over the place just to listen to John talk about drawing. And I'm talking about, I remember one time sitting there with Frank Miller, on one side, Walt Simonson on the other, all kinds of, you know, top artists. I think Michael Golden was there, all these, you know, brilliant guys. And John Buscema was up there, and he had an easel, and he was just doing drawing. And he was just showing these guys about drawing. And I just remember that, oh, man, look at that, this, that. And I do remember one shot, uh, some, you know, uh, John goes, okay, ask me to draw something. 
So somebody, I don't remember if it was Frank or Walter, somebody said, draw me a guy who's laying down by a stream and he's drinking from the stream. He's on his elbows, his hands and elbows, and he's laying flat and he's drinking from a stream. And John goes, okay. He did three lines in five seconds and there was a guy drinking from a stream, laying on his, you know. <laughs> and I remember, I remember everybody going, oh my God. God, look at that. And I'm, again, I'm appreciating it, appreciating, trying to appreciate it from, a, from an intellectual level because I'm not an artist. And I said, I'm looking at the guys that I admired, and they're all going, oh, how did he do that? And I remember talking to Joe Jesco, um, who Joe did a lot of our covers uh, for our black and white lines, uh, for our black and white magazines and things, and, and was also fantastic. What a great painter he was. And I remember Joe was a huge Buscema fan. And he used to talk about Buscema's brilliance when it came to drawing the figure and all. And, uh, and he goes, you know, Ralph, he goes, a guy like John, he goes, it comes out of his head. He goes, if I want to draw a lion, he goes, I got to look at all these pictures of a lion before I, you know, can do the lion. And I remember John, John would just draw the lion out of his head, you know, when he would do it. And, and they knew it, that he would do it. He would just draw the whole thing out of his head. And, uh, and I remember I used to talk to his brother and he would say the same thing. John doesn't have to look at reference. John does it out of his head. And I said, oh, I, I see. And I used to talk a lot to Tom Palmer because John would do a lot of layouts for things, uh, particularly on the Conan books or whatever. Um, and he wouldn't do full pencils. He'd just do layouts. He'd do breakdowns where you just kind of do the figure work and you'd indicate things in the background. And I asked Tom at one point, I said, Tom, you love working over it. And I said, all of the artists that we have, when they hear John's done layouts, all the inkers want to ink it. I said, why? He goes, because all the fundamentals are there, Ralph. He goes, when John Buscema draws a figure, he doesn't have to draw everything. He gives you the figure in motion, and it's all there. He goes, all that you need to finish that figure off is there. He goes, most artists, you know, they can give you the refinement. They can give you the feathering. They can do all the other stuff, the cross-hatching. But the underdrawing, the figure standing fully on the ground, you know, perfectly proportioned, in action, moving, he goes, that takes a John Buscema to do. And that, again, allowed me as I went through the years to really understand what this was all about and why certain guys were revered. And that's... Uh, you know, that's, that's also my, you know, one of my John Buscema stories, was just watching him do that thing where somebody asked him, just draw a guy laying by a lake, you know, on his hands and elbows and doing it. And he did it so fast. And they said, look at the weight. You could, you could feel the figure laying down. You could feel the weight he had on his elbows, you know, the way his head was tilted forward. And they said, that's drawing, you know. A guy crashing through a wall or, you know, something like that. But to, to draw somebody sitting comfortably in a chair, you know there's that shot, I'm sure you're familiar with it, that everybody is, has ripped off over time of Loki from the, um, the Silver Surfer, mm -hmm. where Loki is just sort of sitting in a chair. And he's not doing anything. He's on the splash page, but he's just sitting in the chair and he's got a goblet in his hand. Everybody's ripped that off. And they said because the drawing in that is so powerful. And he's not doing anything. He's not leaping out at you. He's not smashing anything. He's just reclining in this chair and again i got an appreciation for drawing even though i'm not an artist and i couldn't draw a line 
This isn't another, actually, this one's not a question. This is just a comment from a listener. I uh, just yeah. wanted to say no question, but a big thank you to you and Mark Grunwell for those Marvel 2-in-1 stories that were such a huge part of my youth. When I started buying comics off the stands on a monthly, weekly basis with my own money, Marvel 2-in-1 number 64, Thing and Stingray, was one of the first books that I bought. Still a favorite. Please tell whoever sent that in that after all these years anyway, I appreciate it. I would have appreciated it back then, and I appreciate it even more now. When Mark and I, who were true Marvel fans, did those Marvel 2-in-1s, we wanted to bring the same feeling to those books that you would get when you read the Fantastic Four, when you read the really good Fantastic Fours, that you were just taken in by them. When we did the Stingray issues, this was past our time on the Project Pegasus stuff, we did a little something called the Serpent Crown uh, Affair, which was uh, a three-issue story. And the first two were penciled by a good buddy of mine, George Perez. Perez. And the last one was by Jerry Bingham, who did a, another fantastic job on it, and also a good buddy of mine from the old days. And we loved Stingray. I mean, I, I, I remember Mark was editing, I think, Avengers at that time. Um, and I think that was when they had... Um, the Avengers had a like Avengers Island out there, rather than uh, it was it was like out in the harbor somewhere. That's where the Avengers were located. I think Dr. Walt Newell, who was Stingray, I think had, had been connected with creating it. But we wanted to do a three issue story, and we just thought Stingray would be such a cool character. He was sort of you know under the radar sort of guy, or under the sonar as it were. <laughs> and we thought this guy would be a lot of fun. And we we had you know been pretty successful with Project Pegasus. And we wanted to do something that we hope people reacted to just as well. But we really approach those books as fans. You know, what is going to intrigue us as readers? If we were out there reading it, you know, what would get our goat? Not get our goat. What would get our, what would get our interest? What would get us excited? And so every time we sat down to write one of these things, it was because we were excited by the story material. And uh, it, it means more than, than anybody could know to hear after all these years that a guy really got excited by reading a Stingray or a Marvel 2-in-1 that we did because that's exactly what we, we hoped we would get out of people. You know, We wanted to get people excited by it, and we wanted them to come back for the next issue. Excellent. Now, this is uh, another question from a listener who just says, given your extensive experience, were you ever considered for editor-in-chief at Marvel? You know, you'd have to consider the guys, or you'd have to actually ask the guys who had considered me or hadn't considered me. Um, I, I think I made no secret of the fact that I never really wanted that job. I always liked being closer to the material. It was, it was a great position to be in if you wanted to sort of be an overall charge of Marvel. But I always liked having a handful of books that I could really get my hands dirty on and work and, and put my stamp on. And when you're editor-in-chief, you sort of preside over the whole line, and it's a great position of power to be from, and you set the direction for the whole company. But you're not really involved in individual titles. And I would much rather have had a long tenure on Daredevil or Doctor Strange or Thor than to be editor-in-chief, where you kind of had a limited shelf life. And once you were done with that, you never really went back. I can't think of any editor-in-chief who left that position and then just went back to being an editor. So my goal was always to be editor and, you know, have that close connection. The, the analogy that I made to people was... Given, given the choice, I would much rather have been or had the career of Teddy Kennedy than John Kennedy. 
and not because of the assassination, but because <laughs> his shelf life was limited. Teddy Kennedy had decades to leave his imprint on American culture with the work that he did in the Senate. And it's not as powerful a position as the presidency, but if you're an active senator and if you're a guy who really knows how to pull the levers of power, over time you can make more of an impact on the world than maybe you could even do as president. And again, your shelf life is limited to eight years as president, whereas as a senator, you can go for decades and decades. So that was always my feeling when people would ask me. I'd say, I'd always rather have been Teddy Kennedy than JFK. Hmm. When, you, when you were working on the Thor books with Tom and Ron, was it whose kind of idea was it to actually spin out and have an actual Thunderstrike book? Obviously, Eric had been a big part of that book for years, and Tom and Ron had an idea of what they wanted to do with the character. But where did the actual genesis of Let's Spin It Off into its own title come from? That was Tom and Ron. I have to say, I had absolutely nothing to do with that. Um, Tom and Ron completely. The one thing that I can tell you about our run on the book initially was Tom and Ron had planned to do Daredevil. Um, they wanted to come on and do Daredevil that I was working on at that time. I wanted them on Thor because I think they had done a fill-in for me on Thor, and I really liked what they'd done. And I said, you know what? Why don't you guys come on Thor? We can do Cosmic. And I know Tom at the time was not quite sure that he had the chops to do Cosmic stuff. He was much more comfortable with Daredevil and Spider-Man and those kind of lower-tiered characters in terms of power level and uh, landscape and stuff. Thor was a little bit, he thought, out of his wheelhouse. And he did a phenomenal job on Thor. You know, following up on Walt Simonson, it was a whole different approach to Thor. But him and Ron, I loved working with those guys on that book. But no, I had absolutely nothing to do with Eric Masterson on that. That was totally their idea. And um, I, I just gave it my blessing and said, wow, go to it. Let's see where it goes. In the early 90s, when you're working on some of those Avengers books, you were editing a bunch of the titles that became part of Operation Galactic Storm, which was a yeah. massive undertaking. Um, kind of, I mean, like, obviously we'd had crossovers already, but that was particularly large in terms of, I think there's, what, 19 parts to it. Um, oh, yeah. How much of a kind of logistical headache was that? And where did that kind of genesis to have such a big event with that many different books and that many uh, direct kind of numbered tie-ins actually come in? I'll be honest with you. I don't recall, and I wish I could, but I don't recall the genesis of it. But I can tell you, yes, it was certainly a logistical nightmare. Anything of that scope was. But it all worked out. Uh, just recently, um, or maybe actually, no, it was a few years ago, I think they did a reprint of the um, Operation Galactic Storm, and it published a lot of the issues, and I was amazed at how consistent it all was. Uh, one of the great things about it was we were dealing with people who happened to have been kind of local at the time, Bob Harris, of course, you know, being on staff, Fabian Nicienza, who also was local. He lived out here in New Jersey. He was also, for a period of time, was a, an editor on staff. So we had great communication among all the people working on it, so little would escape us. Sometimes it's more difficult. Even when you have phone communications and email stuff, there's something about being all together that, that leaves you less room for... Um, miscommunication, really, than it does when you're at a distance, a, uh, an actual physical distance, even though, as I say, you know, we have the emails today and, uh, you know, you have phone conversations. But there's something about people being on staff and <clears throat> dealing with each other on a daily basis that left us less room for error on a, a massive undertaking as that was, and it was a massive undertaking. But we had people that were thoroughly committed to making it all work. As I say, you know, we have Bob and Fabian on there, and I think Scott Lobdell, too, was involved. 
and um, everybody just uh, you know took it as their calling to make sure that it that all the parts fit together. But uh, yes, it was a logistical nightmare. But unfortunately, I don't quite recall. I don't recall the genesis of it or where it came from. I really, I really don't. I know it wasn't me. Okay. Um, one of the first times I remember seeing your name in print when I was much younger is, uh, and actually kind of noticed and remembered it, was in the one shot about all the different ways you could end the clone saga, um, which obviously came out right when I guess you took over the spider books. And kind of an interesting time to take over the spider books and kind of the, the winning uh, time of the clone saga. What was that like to come on board something where you had to kind of, you know, kind of figure out how to, how to fix this, how to put this whole back together? Okay, that was certainly a that was a, a, almost like a whole career in itself to work on Spider-Man. Um, uh, being very honest with you, I have to tell you that I was never one who wanted to work on Spider-Man, even though I absolutely loved the character um, and, and, you know, loved uh, all of the, the Lee Ditko stuff and the Lee Romita stuff and, you know, the Jerry Conway and all the guys that came afterwards. And I loved Spider-Man and that whole world that he inhabited and his villains, his villain galleries, you know, one of the finest in comics. But I never really wanted to edit Spider-Man because so much had already been done with the character, I thought. Um, and it wasn't like I was going to get into cosmic stuff as I would with Doctor Strange or, or Thor. I was kind of limited in, in one way. Um, you know, you had the New York environs. And also because you were editing four books with the same character in it. And that's something I didn't want to do. You know, when I was editing Thor, I could edit Avengers and... Captain America and all that, I wasn't editing four books with the same guy in it. And you were with Spider-Man. Well, anyway, um, when Bob Harris took over as editor-in-chief, he called me into the office and he said, Ralph, you know, we got a mess here with the Clone Saga and you are going to have to fix it. This is your job. I said, so you're giving me the Spider-Man books to edit? He goes, yep. And he gave me a list of things that had to be done. Now, keep in mind that already it had been established that Peter Parker that we knew was not Peter Parker that had been in the early issues, that it was Ben Riley who was the real Peter Parker, and that the baby actually belonged to Peter Parker, not to Ben Riley, was to this other guy who was a clone, and that um, we had to find a villain who was behind the whole thing because Bob wasn't happy, happy with whoever they were thinking of, Miles Warren or Harry Osborne or somebody like that. He didn't think it had the scope that you'd need to, you know, be, in, be behind this whole thing. And we also, Bob wanted me to get rid of Ben Riley. So I was given quite a list of things to do, and I also had kind of a demoralized staff of writers at that time because they had just been through so much. You know, the Cold Saga was an attempt to sort of the barnacles from the good ship Spider-Man. Um, this was also a way to undo the marriage. And the initial idea behind it, and again, I was not involved in the beginning of this thing. As you said, I was kind of thrown into it in the middle. The initial idea, as I, I recall, was to bring in this other character and to say that the character that we had been reading for a number of years, the character called himself Peter Parker, was not the original guy but that in that one clone story that I think um, Jerry Conway had done with Ross Andrew, that it was actually the other character, the real one, who had been tossed into the uh, smokestack or whatever, something had happened. So the one we've been reading about wasn't the real guy. But by bringing in the real guy, we could then eliminate the other one and say, okay, he's going to go off with Mary Jane, have the kid, 
best wishes to them. Now we've got a single Peter Parker again. He can date. He can do what we want him to do. He gets back to that that whole status quo that was wanted at the time. But what happened was the clone saga kind of went on and on and on, mm-hmm. and they sort of got tied up in their own knots there, and it just was beginning to get unwieldy. So when Bob brought me in, he says, you've got to end it this way. He goes, and I want this, this, and this done. Um, something that Bob came up with, which I thought at the time, I thought was kind of outrageous, but has turned out to be something that was the masterstroke, was he wanted Norman Osborn to come back. And I remember I kind of balked at that. I said, Bob, this guy has been dead for 20 years. He goes, find a way to bring him back. Make it work. I said, okay, you're giving me my walking papers. Not my walking papers, my assignment, my, my, uh, my orders. So off I went. And I sat down with my writers and I said, look, this is what we've got to do. So little by little, with these four guys, we managed to make the whole thing work. And I give all the credit in the world to those guys, to, uh, to Mark DeMattis and to Tom DeFalco and um, to uh, the, the couple of other guys who were working on it, too, back then, that, that um, were just, you know, they were all, all phenomenal writers. And we all sat around and we just said, okay, let's make this thing work. And little by little, I, you know, I said, we've got to bring Norman back. And there was a big, you know, human cry about that. But once we got our marching orders, they made that whole thing work. And when we put Norman Osborn behind the whole thing, it all clicked into place. And we were able to eliminate Ben Riley and to show that Peter Parker was the real guy. And also to get rid of the baby so to speak, even though that's kind of rough language when you're referring to a baby, but to eliminate the, the pregnancy. It took a lot of doing and a lot of sleepless nights and all, and I told the guys when we sat down with the, to, to work on this thing, I said, and Todd DeZago was another guy that was, was involved on, on those books, I said, don't pay attention to what they're saying online or letters or whatever I said. We have our marching orders, and this is what we've got to do. I said, we cannot go by what people are saying online, because half of them are going to love what we're doing, and half of them are going to hate it. And that way lies madness. So if we're satisfied with what we've done, that's what's important. If we come out of this whole thing, and we put all the pieces back together, then we can say we've done the right thing. And that's it. And by the time we got to Peter Parker, issue 75, it all happened to work out, by the way. There was a certain synchronicity to the fact that it was all coming to a head with Spider-Man, the untitled Spider-Man, issue 75, which happened to come out on Halloween or around Halloween. And it was great because we brought Norman back as the Green Goblin. And what better, who better to do a Halloween story with? Norman Osborn as the Green Goblin, and what better to put Peter Parker, Spider-Man. That's when we renamed the book Peter Parker to let everybody know it wasn't Ben Riley; it was Peter Parker. But to run that storyline through four separate books, to have it all make sense, to all lead to issue 75, and then after that, we actually did a kind of updated version of issue 75, where we, we added, there were a whole bunch of additional pages that couldn't be run initially, that John Romita Jr. had drawn and Howard Mackey had written, and we added that in kind of a 
sort of a director's cut version, and we had a lot of the rec- a lot of it recolored because we kind of were rushed on that that one to get it out. Mm-hmm. So I was very proud of that, and it did come together. I was thoroughly satisfied with that, and the reader seemed to accept it. They seemed to go, okay, you know, you convinced us. This is the way it works, and even though we had to, you know, put it in reverse and backtrack all that way. Um, I, my hats off to all the guys who worked on that. Howard Mackey, as I said, I finally remembered everybody's name on that um, <laughs> on the books. It was it was wonderful. And what I decided to do after that to keep my interest up after we'd done this monumental clone thing was I said I want each of these books to have their own personality. I want each of the writers to bring something different to it. So each of the books sort of did. The Todd DeZego book, which he did with Mike Waringo, Sensational Spider-Man, it had more of a kind of a lighthearted look to it. And the Mark DeMattis book was a little bit heavier. Um, Tom DeFalco's was more of a, maybe the traditional Spider-Man that, that uh, you know, he was doing. And uh, the John Romita book with Howard Mackey, that became <clears throat> kind of a, a different book where we would bring back some of the villains and do crazy things with them in there. So I had a lot of things I wanted to do on Spider-Man, and I wanted to have each of the books have a different personality. But another thing that was interesting, too, was that after we did all this massive Clone Saga stuff, I said, maybe I can take a little bit of a breather, but it wasn't the case. Because so much of the spotlight was on Spider-Man, because he was the company mascot more. You know, he was the character everybody knew about more than anybody else, more than any other single character. I was immediately told, you've got to come up with another big event right away. <laughs> I was brought into a, uh, really, I was brought into a meeting, and Bob Harris was there, and a, and a lot of the guys, I think Matt Ragone was there from the sales department, they were going, okay, we can't lose any momentum, what's next? So I knew there was no breathing room, so I went back to the guys, and they came up with Spider Hunt, which was Peter Parker being framed for murder. And that led into the next big event, which everybody loved, um, particularly the sales guys, because they had a, a natural sales thing here, which was the Multiple Identities book, which was the uh, Identity Crisis, where Spider-Man, who is now being hunted and was wanted for murder, could no longer do his spider thing as Spider-Man. So he invented four different identities. And the reason we did, I mean, we had several, we had sales reasons for doing it as four, but also there was a good story reason for that, because if suddenly one day Spider-Man is gone and another character named Ricochet appears, maybe the police would get into their head, hey, wait a minute, Spider-Man's gone, but this guy just showed up? That's probably Spider-Man. But if four guys showed up, they would not, they would go, oh, four, four new guys appearing, okay. Maybe one of them Spider-Man, maybe none of them. So each one of the books, each of the guys came up with a different Spider-Man. As I said, we had Ricochet, and we had the Hornet, and we had two others. And both those four books had identity crisis, and we were able to bring that to a conclusion. And once that was done, then I could sort of go in and play around with the idea of each of the books having its own personality and going from there. But uh, that's another reason that I found Spider-Man a, a, a tough slog, it was because there was, you know, Spider-Man was the single character who is better known than any Marvel character to the world at large. The X-Men certainly were were probably bigger sellers in the comic book world, but to the average guy and to the world at large, Spider-Man 
was the character that was associated with Marvel more than any other. So Spider-Man was the one that had the, the light shine on it. That was the one that would make more of the toys out of and mm-hmm. wanted to promote more than any other. So when you were on Spider-Man, there was always a spotlight on you. So that was, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was tough. But I found it rewarding because during my tenure, we not only did all that stuff to return you know, Peter Parker and get rid of the baby and do all that other stuff. But we also brought Aunt May back because I always felt that while you could do, and they did a really brilliant issue, I think it was 400 of Spider-Man um, or, or uh, Spectacular, whatever it was, they, you know, ended Aunt May's life. And I said, it was a story that brought me to tears, but now what do you do afterwards? To me, Aunt May always has to be a part of Spider-Man's mythology because... Spider-Man has kind of passed into the mythos of America, really. He's, he's larger than, than Marvel. He's sort of part of Americana right now. Everybody knows the, you know, Aunt May connected with Spider-Man. He is, she represents to him, she is the embodiment of the guilt that Peter Parker feels because his inaction made her a widow. And every time he sees her, He knows that he did that, and no other character can fulfill that part of the Spider-Man mythos. No one. That's why he dotes on her, not only because he loves her, but because he knows that she's a widow. If he had gone after that burglar and stopped him, that burglar would not have killed Uncle Ben and made her a widow. She is a key part of it. So, in my view, you cannot kill her off. So I thought it was imperative and important that we brought her back. Bob Harris agreed, and we did bring her back. And the other thing that I wanted to do that I was very proud of was I thought to some extent that the villains over the last few years had kind of been badly served. Um, they kind of did things with the scorpion that I didn't, I didn't like. They weakened him. Um, they made the vulture into a young man, I thought. Uh, if I remember correctly, he became a young guy, and I think he had cancer at one point. Um, there were several other other villains that I thought were, were just, they, you know, like the Shocker. They sort of used him as a goof villain. Um, and uh, a couple of other, oh, Dr. Octopus is actually dead mm-hmm. at that point. Right, right. Otto Octavius was dead. I think it was Kane. It was during the Clone Saga. Kane came up behind him and I think snapped his neck. And they, they he was dead and buried. That's right. Right? And I said, you know what? I don't want to do this. I want all these guys back. Spider-Man's villains should be Spider-Man's villains. I'm, I'm kind of a guy that, that feels that you shouldn't really kill off a great villain. If you want to, you know, if you want to do something with him, always give him an out. If you're going to, you know, blow him up or whatever, but give him an out. Because the, the future generations of readers shouldn't be deprived of great villains from Marvel because somebody took it upon themselves to definitively kill him. Um, and I thought, in fact, it's funny because I thought we had definitively killed off Ben Riley. but as you can tell from reading the current Spider-Man books, that hasn't been true either. They found a way to bring Ben Riley back. They found the, the little bits and pieces of Ben that were floating around, and they brought him back too. So, okay, even, even we couldn't do it. Um, but with the other villains, I wanted to, um, to use the, the opportunity I had to bring those villains back in full force. So in, in the Spider-Man book I was doing with uh, Howard Mackey, we brought um, the Shocker back, gave him a new costume, mm-hmm. upped his powers. We brought the Trapster back, who I thought had also kind of been badly served in recent appearances, and we made him a guy to be reckoned with again. That was my thing. I wanted all the villains to be, to 
there'll be characters to be reckoned with. To me, and I've always said this, I've said this at editorial meetings, there's no point in having a villain that gets dispensed with in three panels by the hero. Because the villain should always kind of have the upper hand on the, on the hero, because what's heroic about taking down a guy that's an easy mark? You know, it may be a fun thing to do for, you know, oh, Spider-Man takes on, uh, you know, Leapfrog and beats him up in three panels, and okay. But you shouldn't do that. The villain should always be formidable, because he makes the hero formidable if the hero can defeat him, or take him on anyway. And that, I always thought, was very important. So I used my opportunity on Spider-Man to do that, um, to kind of fix, if you will, um, the Scorpion and, and the rest of them, to bring Doc Ock back. We did a whole storyline. Tom DeFalco did a whole storyline with Steve Scrooge, where they um, had the hand come in and bring Doc Ock back from the dead. And I said, this is good. You know, this is important stuff. So I, I was very fulfilled when I left Spider-Man. It wasn't a character I ever wanted to edit, but during my tenure on there, I felt that I accomplished pretty much everything that I wanted to, and when I handed the books over to Axel Alonso, I did it with a clear conscience that I had done and said what I wanted to, to do and say on that on those on those books, and I hope people were, were happy with what we had done. Well, I don't mean to, to make you feel any older than you need to feel, but I mean... <laughs> But, um, I mean, when Amazing Spider-Man 419, which would have been the first kind of post-Clone Saga issue, that was the first issue of Amazing Spider-Man where I actually started kind of buying it with my own money. I would have been about 14 years old or so, or maybe 13. Um, and so that was kind of my, you know, I, I'd started buying probably uh, maybe a year earlier, I started buying X-Men books, but that was my first kind of entry point. And now I'm going to continue going with Spider-Man. And I've, I've said often before on the show that, you know, X-Men's what first brought me kind of into comics, but Spider-Man's what kind of kept me in and uh but that initial run on amazing spider-man that you were obviously the editor for was hugely impactful for me and then when that you it's funny hearing you mention the first kind of um crossover you were kind of forced into doing which was you know the spider hunt and then the identity crisis was a huge impact to me as a reader and to this day like i remember when they first kind of started reprinting those in trades a couple years ago i was just blown away that they were finally getting to that stuff because it always feels like the post clone saga kind of pre new chapter era or next chapter I should say, never got any love. And for me, that was my formative period on Spider-Man. So uh, I, I personally want to thank you for, you know, kind of getting those teams to kind of give each book their own identity because I really enjoyed all those books as they were coming out. Because, again, I was in that prime age to kind of re, be receiving all of those different kind of inputs. Well, that's, that's very, very gratifying to hear you say that. It, it's always gratifying when you put as much work as we did, and I always say the collective we, because it's really the writers that did all this stuff. You know, I was kind of cracking the whip and all that, but when you have a team of people that are as talented as, as the guys I mentioned, you know, um, they, they, they really carried the ball, and they, they did a phenomenal job, all four of those guys, and of course our artists, too, who were on those books. Um, but I, I did want to say that um, I did want the status quo returned. And, and, you know, maybe in some quarters we didn't get any love uh, because to some extent um, I think people kind of got turned off to Spider-Man for a period of time because of the Clone Saga. And I think also there were people who got invested in Ben Riley and were not happy that we, we returned Peter Parker as the real Spider-Man. I knew we were, we were walking through a minefield. But as I said, I've been given my marching orders. And I think the time has, has sort of proven us, you know, right on that. Because, look, um, Aunt May has once again become a major part of the Spider-Man mythos. 
Um, I think Dan Slott had her married off to uh, J. Jonah Jameson's father. Um, everybody's had a great time with Norman Osborne. I mean, there was a time he became, there was a period of time there, I think, when Brian Bennis was writing him that he was sort of the premier villain in the Marvel Universe. He was he was like running S.H.I.E.L.D. or something like that. And, uh, you know, as, as long as he was gone, um, they'd left kind of a void. And I, I think it was sort of shocking that Bob wanted him brought back, but I thought if we could find a compelling way to return him, you know, making him, uh, having him actually go to England, uh, to Europe, and spend all that time over there, which was why he was not here. Um, I thought if we could make it work, Norman Osborn should be, you know, back in the uh, back in the mix. And as I say, everybody's had a great time with Norman. Um, you know, once he once his long shadow was 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 cast over the uh, Spider Verse, he's um, been all over the place since then. So uh, I've been been very happy with that. And I think this sort of villain rehabilitation program, even though it wasn't rehabilitating the villains, it was just sort of making them formidable again, I think is also uh, paid off. And I'm also, uh, by the way, very very careful about that. I'll, I'll make my comments known if I think somebody is playing with the villain and giving them short shrift, because I think that's sort of an easy way out, and it's kind of a cheat. I think the villain, if you're going to use the trapster, you don't make him goofy. You say, this guy is formidable. You spend some time thinking about him, because we did when we brought him back, oh, and when John sure. Romita Jr. was drawing him and Howard Mackey was writing him, he was a guy to be reckoned with. And that's the way I think the villains should be handled. Um, that's probably the best. They shouldn't be used. That's probably the best appearance the Trapsters ever had. You remember that then? Oh, uh, again, that was a very important period to me, so I remember that specifically, and it was really cool. It was, you made him cool, and uh, that storyline specifically was interesting because you had kind of Peter empathizing with who this guy was and kind of seeing pieces of himself in the trapster and again it was humanizing him but also making him a threat and making him a kind of a scary villain as well and kind of amping that up in a way that i've never seen him ever given that respect anywhere else i i thank you for that and we did intend to do that and that, that's always been a, a, a bugaboo of mine is that the villains shouldn't be shabbily treated or or diminished in relation to the hero they should always and they're all fascinating characters um, one one thing that I always relate to people when they they talk about this, and again I've mentioned this at editorial retreats, when uh, you know it'll come up about using a villain as sort of cannon fodder, is I'll say, you know there was a period of time when we used to kind of laugh at Bullseye um, because hey, he threw paper airplanes at people, and you know okay he wasn't uh, he, he wasn't considered like a top notch daredevil villain. When Frank Miller came in, and a lot of people think that Frank created Bullseye, but he didn't. Marv Wolfman created him. Marv had a very nice tenure um, on, on Daredevil. He, he tried to bring some darker elements to Daredevil pre-Frank Miller, and I think he did very well. I think he had a character called Copperhead in there and a few others, mm-hmm. um, and he, he had a nice run on Daredevil. And Bullseye was, was okay as a villain when Marv did it. It wasn't until Frank came on and made him this really lethal guy that everybody wanted to use him. And everybody wanted to give him, you know, they wanted to have Bullseye in their books and all. And so I I bring that up to people. I said, there was a period of time where Bullseye wasn't considered the real lethal villain that he was. It took a writer to come on to say, I see enormous potential with Bullseye. Let's take a guy who throws paper airplanes at people and kills them with that. Let's see what we can do with that. Mm-hmm. Nobody laughs at Bullseye. Nobody. Mm-hmm. So 
That's the way I felt about it, and that was the example I would always use. I said, take the villains and find something worthwhile in them. Take a little time to think about them, or else my other admonition to people was, don't use them. Hmm. But don't put them in books to make fools of them, because now, you know, you're 40 years old, and you think the stilt man's a silly villain, so you're going to do a character, you're going to do a story where the stilt man is a silly villain. Don't do that. Just don't use the stilt man. And that's that's always been my admonition to people. True. I mean, another good example of that is, you know, Craven the Hunter. I mean, everyone's favorite Craven the, the Hunter storyline is, you know, the one where he dies, like his last Craven's story. Craven the last hunt. Yeah, I mean, and before that, like, he was a fun villain, but not to the degree that, you know, Demetrius was able to use him. Yes. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, and he's, he's, some of the villains are easily caricatured. But I, I always, as I say, I, I tend to warn people against doing that because it diminishes the hero, too. The hero needs to feel a bit outclassed. He needs to feel that the, that the villain has got something on him. And uh, that, I think, is always the way, you know, they should be played. Or, or, you know, as I repeat again, just don't use them. But, yes, you mentioned Craven's Last Hunt. Um, another example that I would give you, uh, not of a, of a character who had been, um, uh, was lessened, but of a character that was going to be killed off. I remember at one point um, Brian was going to kill um, the Kingpin in Daredevil. And I remember mentioning to Brian at the time, I called him up when I heard about this, because I wasn't editing Daredevil at that time, and I said, you know, Brian, I said, Frank had the opportunity to kill Kingpin, and he didn't. And that's why you can play with him today. I said, think about the guy who follows you. He's going to want to play with the Kingpin. So if you want, put him in a coma, get him off the stage, do something dramatic with him, but don't definitively kill him. Because then you're taking one of the toys that the next guy who comes on will want to play with, and he won't have that character to play with. Or he'll have to find some kind of hokey way to bring him back. I said, so do what you want with him, but don't kill him. And Brian got the message, and Brian didn't kill him. And Brian did a, had a fantastic run on Daredevil and did some fantastic things with the Kingpin. Um, but he didn't kill him. Hmm. Uh, a question about, well, a uh, specific villain, and this isn't actually a book I believe that you directly edited, but I guess would have been kind of under your kind of spider office was, uh, and I guess earlier in your tenure, uh, there was the Hobgoblin Lives miniseries where Roger Stern comes back to the Hobgoblin character. Now, I don't believe you actively edited the book, but I believe that was still within your office at that time. Am I correct? I believe so, yes. No, I'm just kind of curious, like, if you remember anything about, you know, Roger Stern coming back to the character that he created and finally being able to kind of put to rest the story of his identity, because obviously that had gone through some other hands uh, in the time since he had written the Hobgoblin character, and he finally kind of being able to put his vision into place and kind of retro retroactively making sure that his original vision was the correct version of the Hobgoblin's identity. Do you remember being involved in, in those discussions or in the actually getting Roger back to do this story? I don't recall if I actually got Roger back. Roger and I uh, have been very, very good friends throughout the years. He was one of the guys that um, taught me when I was on staff because he had been there before I was, and I learned how to do things through him. And he was also the guy that um, gave me uh, the writing assignment on Marvel 2 and 1 to, uh, you know, to create Project Pegasus. So I owe Roger a lot. He also gave me a writing snip on Doctor Strange, and um, I, I owe the guy a lot, and he's a terrific guy. And Roger was also a guy, like Mark Grunewald and myself, who was really into 
making sure the Marvel Universe was consistent, that it all fit together and it all worked. I remember a Spider-Man story that Roger did, and I will get back to your point in a minute. I do remember a Spider-Man story that Roger had done where he showed that that story that the Tinkerer was supposedly uh, an alien in. Um, it was very, done very, very early on where they actually had aliens in, um, in Spider-Man, and it turned out that the Tinkerer, there was a mask somebody mm-hmm. found, and it turned out he was an alien. Roger went back and fixed that story because he showed that the Tinkerer and all those guys that were supposedly aliens were not actually aliens. They were all thugs, but they were using this as a cover. And Roger, of course, being the great writer he was, he made it work. But he didn't have to go back and do that. But you know what? It got under his skin that we had a we had a kind of a uh, an extraterrestrial thing in Spider-Man that didn't quite work. And the Tinkerer was such a great villain who, you know, later on got used as the guy who created all of the, the weapons. He was sort of the go-to guy in the Spider-Verse you went to to get your weapons made. And Roger made that work. But to go back to your, your original point, um, I fully supported him in that. Um, and going back to his original vision and getting it in print, even if it may have had to be just a little convoluted to get it done, I thought it was satisfying and I thought it was necessary because he'd done something very important in there with uh, Hopgoblin. And to see that his original vision was restored, I know it was important to Roger and it was important to me. And I'm glad that he was given the opportunity to do it and I fully supported him on that 100%. Now, not long after that, um, in a book that you were editing, um, you had uh, three issues of Spectacular Spider-Man where Roger came on and wrote with Glenn Greenberg and actually got to finally put the Hobgoblin and Green Goblin in the same issue together and actually having the original versions of those characters face-to-face. What was that like, you know, bringing him on? Because I guess you had JMD had been writing the book and then he left and then you had Glenn Greenberg come on and do, I think, the last chapter of Identity Crisis. And then they have this three-part story with Roger um, how, what was that process of kind of doing this story, coming off of the, I guess, the success of restoring who the Hobgoblin was in Hobgoblin Lives? Well, again, when you when you're dealing with you know people of, of Roger's caliber and, and uh, Glenn Greenberg, who also is a, a good buddy of mine, uh, we we actually get together every week um, when I head up to Marvel. Uh, I meet him for lunch afterwards, and uh, you know we chat about things in the business. And he's still very interested in it, uh, even though he's not you know directly in it at the moment. He's uh, always got uh, you know make many many very salient comments about what's going on in comics today, and he keeps up on all this stuff. But when you're dealing with guys of that caliber, there's always a good reason for them wanting to do what they wanted to do. And they also had, had um, both Roger and, and Glenn, they have instincts that are very similar to mine, which is to make things fit, to make it all appear as parts of a whole. And so when they came on to do this, you know, if I could offer, and, and I really don't remember offering any specific suggestions to them or anything, I just recall that I was happy that it was being done and that it was something that was good because anything that was going to kind of smooth out the spider mythos and to make it all seem more consistent was important. So, uh, and, and you couldn't ask for, you know, better guys than that to do that. So, uh, you know, working with them on that, um, to what extent I did, I was very happy and very pleased with the results. Excellent. Now, I, we've gone way over our, the time we expected, so obviously I'll, I'll try and cut this short. Um, oh, I didn't know. It's okay. Go ahead. Keep <laughs> but, going. I, I, I actually lost track of that. It's raining like crazy here in uh, in Bergen County, and uh, I'm, I'm, I was just 
kind of getting getting a nice breeze through the window. So uh, <laughs> go on. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, so at some point in the future, maybe on, on a different episode, I'd love to go kind of deeper into the the ultimate universe because obviously you were there kind of from the beginning. But uh, one thing I do want to talk about um, is that wh- you know when you were working at Marvel in the seventies and eighties. Um, I know I've heard of some of the kind of issues you've had with Jim Shooter, and I'm always curious what the what it was like in the offices during those times, uh, because we hear a lot of it now. And again, I'm I obviously you know much younger than you, so I kind of grew up hearing the stories, and I'm always curious on you know how things were done, and and it's interesting to talk to people like yourself and get a sense of what the bullpen was like and what the offices were like, and you were around as we've said you know 35 years, and you kind of saw the ups and the downs and the good, the bad, and the ugly of Marvel. Where does the shooter kind of period kind of stand for you? Well, you know, again, I, uh, as you said, I've worked through that entire period, and and Jim's period, like any period that I worked, uh, any editor in chief I worked on, had its ups and downs, and I wouldn't say that it was significantly different than any other period. Jim was certainly a very significant editor-in-chief because he's the guy who brought in that system, which they still work under today, um, which kind of copied the D.C. system where you have the editor-in-chief at the top of the pile and a bunch of editors and assistants under him. Because, you know, believe it or not, before that, they didn't really have that. What they had was an editor-in-chief, um, a, I guess they'd call it maybe an executive editor under him or a senior editor or whatever. And then you had a, a bunch of people who were kind of proofreaders. Um, and may have been involved in different books, but not as editors. But Jim changed that system, and he brought in um, editors from the outside. I think mean, Al Milgram and Larry Hama, Louise Simonson, all great choices. And then he, as editor-in-chief, was at the, the top of the pile. So you know, a lot of stuff, though, gets gets blown out of, out of proportion. I always got great reviews from Jim as editor-in-chief. He, um, and while I've heard some, some of these, these things about the, what went on, um, a lot of the stuff, as I say, is, is blown up out of proportion because I always got along well with Jim. At least I thought I was getting along well with Jim. He even had something he called Ralph Macchio Appreciation Day, where, <laughs> yeah, seriously, um, where, where they would take me out uh, to lunch or to, to, uh, to dinner or something like that, and um, they would kind of give me gifts and goofy things and things like that, and Jim called it Ralph Macchio Appreciation Day. And this was all under Jim. Uh, he used to come out to my place um, uh, with uh, the rest of the gang, and we would all go, we would hang out and swim, because I've got a pool in my backyard, and on Fridays, we would get out at one o'clock, and everybody would kind of come out to my place. They would, they would rent a van or take a couple of cars, a bunch of cars, come out here and we'd spend the afternoon, and then we'd go out to dinner. And Jim was part of the gang. Um, so we all, you know, seemingly got along. Yes, we had some, you know, creative problems, but you really have that with anybody. It, it wasn't any more extreme. Um, look, it was Jim that promoted me from assistant to editor. It was Jim who gave me the line of books I had, and I worked the entire time uh, of Jim Shooter's tenure under there. Uh, he didn't fire me, and I would have assumed that had he not been happy with my work, he would have let me go, because that's what an editor-in-chief would do if he was unhappy with someone. But I used to get a lot of compliments from him, and whenever I went in for the yearly review, it was always very positive and very, um, you know, very, hey, you're doing good work, 
keep it up. Hmm. But I think I, I think more of the problem is that I, I think Jim was having problems with the upstairs people, um, with management types. And again, I can't go into that specifically because I don't know what it was specifically. But I, I know that there were problems that he was having. Um, and what went on between him and the, and the, the, the management at Marvel, that's something you'd have to ask him about because I was not aware of it. But I can tell you that, you know, um, working under him as an editor, um, you know, I was able to do a lot of what I wanted to do. I mean, you can look back at the books that I edited with Jim Shooter's editor-in-chief, and uh, we did a lot of what we wanted to do. Yeah, we would butt heads occasionally, but get butt heads with anybody that you were, we were working with, um, and that would include the editor-in-chief. So... Um, it was an expansive period we worked under with Jim, and um, you know when his when his time was up, um, that was it. I loved working with Tom DeFalco. Uh, Tom uh, was was uh, another guy who came in at a time when you know it was it was tough towards the end of Jim's tenure because of the problems he was having with people upstairs. I think that it may have affected the way that he was working with the editors because he felt he was under a lot of pressure from upstairs, and he was kind of battling them, you know, one way or the other. But when Tom came in, it was, uh, you know, a whole different thing. We had a new guy in there now, and, and you know, we were hoping that uh, things would lighten up a little bit. And I, I believe that Tom was able to navigate the waters a little bit better um, when he was dealing with the upstairs people. And so that kind of made things a little bit less stressful downstairs. Hmm. So that's the way things work. But, yeah, I, I really, honestly, I don't have any juicy stories to tell about any confrontations, you know, or things like that. Because if he really wasn't happy with my work, I, I would have been let go. And that never happened. And I, I always, as I said, I always would go in there and get good reviews from Jim. Um, I considered him a friend. And, um, you know, that was, that was the way it went. They just were not be So a lot of these things get really blown up out of proportion. You know, so-and-so said this, and then there was this kind of thing. It, that really wasn't the way it was. You know, there was some tension and pressure at the end of the tenure because I think he was he was uh, battling the upstairs people, and and again that just affects the way you work with uh, you know your own staff. So, but he was certainly a very consequential editor in chief. You know, he he sort of changed the whole um, dynamic of the way uh, Marvel's books were put out because each individual group of, uh, you know, he hired editors that had their own groups of people. Uh, sorry, their own groups of books then, and that uh, had never happened before. Mm-hmm. Now, when you, when Tom is the editor-in-chief and you're editing Tom's work, did yeah. that ever create any friction, or it's Tom, so no? <laughs> you know what? It's just what you said. With It's Tom, so no. Tom and I... And we still hang out together. I just had lunch with Tom um, last week. Uh, I met him and Glenn Greenberg for lunch. Tom and I talk on the phone a lot, and uh, Tom is a buddy, too. Uh, Tom was a very easygoing guy. He was also very, very smart as editor-in-chief. We had a great run with him as editor, as editor-in-chief. And I, I really have to tell you, and I, I say this as honestly as I can tell you, when I worked with Tom and he was working with me on two books, Fantastic Four and Thor or anything else he did with me, I never, ever felt intimidated in the slightest that I was working with the editor-in-chief. He was always my writer. And when I wanted changes made and I went to him, he made those changes. And it was, it was never a case of him being my boss that, oh, boy, I better watch out. There's going to be repercussions if I touch this guy's stuff. Tom... 
respected editors, and he respected what an editor brought to the table on his work. Tom was a guy who didn't mind being edited. He, you know, he knew when he turned something in, it wasn't going to be letter perfect, and he knew that if, if he trusted his editor, his editor was going to make what he did even better. So we got along like hand in glove. Me, him, and Ron Friends, or me, him, and anybody else that we worked with, Randall Friends, Ron's uh, b- brother. It was just a, a great, great time to, uh, to work with Tom as editor-in-chief. And I, I, as I say, there was never the slightest thing that, oh, boy, this is the boss. And um, <laughs> we used to go, I'll tell you, there was a funny story, that just to show how relaxed things were with Tom up there. One time I was in the office uh, with Tom, and he had a, he had a big chair that had a big, big back on it, went up three or four feet, you know, like past his head, and he used to swivel around in the chair. And I was in there talking with him one time, and he got a phone call that he had to take. So he swiveled around behind me. And uh, his, his back was to me, and he was on the thing. And I'm sitting there going, how long is this guy going to be on the phone? And then I saw a bunch of his business cards. And I said, you know, while he's on the phone, I think I'll have some fun with these. So I took all of his business cards, and I crossed out Tom DeFalco, and I put in Tom DeFatso. And I just put them all back in the back. <laughs> And I left him there, and he swiveled around, you know, having no idea what this would happen. And then apparently a week or so later, he had a bunch of guys, representatives from Hasbro came in, and he was sitting there, and he um, he handed out his business cards to them. And one of the guys, because Tom's told me the story, he goes, one of the guys looked at me and goes, have you looked at your business cards lately? <laughs> And Tom goes, no, I haven't. So he looked at it, and he goes, Ralph. So he took all the cards, and he marched out to my office, and he threw them on the desk, and he looked at me as if he was going to get mad, and then he cracked up, and he goes, you son of a gun, how could you do something like that? And I, I looked at him, and I said, I said, Tom, how did you know it was me? And he said, who else would it be? But... It was it was fun, and you know something. I also did the same thing when Jim was editor in chief. There was a time that that uh, Jim had somebody in his office uh, from some outside person, and he was uh, uh, I don't know talking about the staff or whatever. And he was very proud of his editorial staff, and I, this was an outside guy, and he certainly wanted to make a good impression on him, and he wanted the, the staff to you know we were all gonna gonna told the mark, you know, that. And so what I did was, uh, we had one of those toys up in the office. It was like a toy car or something that made noise and a head would pop out of it or something like that. So as Jim was talking to this guy, I got down on my hands and knees and I took the car and I just went into his office and I didn't say anything to him. And I just went around the office and he, he kind of peered over his desk at me and I was on the floor with this goofy looking car that went around and around. And then I just went out of the office and closed the door. <laughs> So I hope he had a good explanation for the guy. But you see, you know, we were pretty relaxed with with Jim too. So it was uh, we we had our fun. We had our fun with Jim too, and uh, it was that was the kind of atmosphere that uh, we had up there at Marvel. But believe me, uh, most of the, the the tension that you may hear about that went on with with um, personnel, it was really because of outside forces. It was really because of. What was going on outside? Marvel being sold, or something you know happening there that we were going through a bankruptcy period. That was what sort of created the tension. It wasn't so much between editor in chief and staff, or between editor and editor, or writer and editor. We were all pretty committed to the same thing. We all were on the same page. We all wanted to put out good good comics, and we all had a pretty similar idea of what a good comic was. It was it was. 
was largely outside forces that would create some tension up at Marvel. So if you hear some of these other stories, you know, take it from me because I was there. Most of it came from, from outside stuff that uh, that's what sort of created tension in the office. Okay. Now we're gonna slow. We're we're gonna uh, slowly start to wrap up. I just want to ask a question about. To fast forward to two thousand and five. You're editing the Ultimate books, and you do yeah. the, you're uh, editing Ultimate Fantastic Four, and you guys introduced the idea of the, of the actual Marvel Zombies, which ended up becoming a whole thing of its own. Did you, <laughs> a phenomenon, right? It really was a phenomenon of that period. Did you guys have <laughs> any sense that that was going to kind of take on a life of its own? And obviously, at the time, a lot of people with you guys calling the the storyline the crossover, everyone had preconceived notions of what that was going to be and you guys flip it on its head and then you introduce these <laughs> these zombies which become again they really became a phenomenon that took over for a while did you guys have any sense that that was going to happen um no i i'll tell you i give complete credit for the creation of marvel zombies to mark millar we were in a meeting at one time and i think uh, Joe Casada was there, and uh, uh, may have been dan buckley or bill jamis whoever it was but we were talking about the um what we were going to do next with uh, Ultimate Fantastic Four. And Mark Millar whispered something to me about this idea he had for Marvel Zombies. And I looked at him and I said, oh, that's great. you got to tell him. So he, he came up with this idea of Marvel Zombies right on the, on the spot. He may have thought about it in advance, but he mentioned it right there on the spot. And everybody thought, oh, this is cool. But we didn't think anything was really going to come of this. Well, anyway, when we did it, it became just phenomenal and it, and it went you know through the roof and everybody they just couldn't get enough of marvel zombies mark just hit the mother load with that and i wish i could tell you that i could take some credit for it i had absolutely nothing to do with it i'm probably the only thing i can say about it is i was the first one to hear about it because he whispered it in my ear um but there is there is one other note i would make about marvel zombies too is that um robert kirkman he of the um Walking Dead, the, the television phenomenon. Yeah. He wrote some Marvel Zombie stuff for us before Marvel Zombies, uh, before we created Walking Dead. He came on and he did Marvel Zombies. Absolutely. Well, and actually I had a question about, so with Marvel Zombies, a huge part of that phenomenon especially was obviously all those iconic covers that were sent up of original, you know, classic covers, but with the zombified characters by Arthur, I guess, Soedem? Soedem, yeah. Um, now, how did, how did you guys kind of get him to do these covers? And, you know, because uh, as I said, like, there were so many printings of all these different Marvel Zombies books with all the, you know, people would pick them up because each printing would have a, you know, a new cover. You had a, you know, a book of all the covers that came out because, again, they were so eye-catching and they took these classic moments but made all the characters zombies instead how did he kind of become the guy who was the face of the of all these books wow you know i have to tell you even though that was more recent i honestly don't recall but i can tell you a couple of things it probably was joe casada because joe had contacts with so many people and brought so many um outside people into marvel of uh, such a high caliber and also um it's possible that Arthur Soydem may have contacted Marvel, but I think more likely it may, it may have been um, Joe Quesada. I know that back when we were working on Epic Illustrated, and I was the assistant editor on that um, with um, Rick Marshall before he left and Archie Goodwin took over, we used Arthur Soydem. Uh, on a, a, a series that he did. And so his name had been known to us, but 
I don't think it was me that thought of using orthosoidum on those covers. But however it came about, and as I say, it was probably Joe, um, it became a huge hit, too. As you said, we, we did whole collections of, um, you know, just the covers. It was just incredible to, to take, you know, classic Marvel covers and do them as, as zombie covers. The thing just took off like I've never seen anything take off. It was, it was unbelievable. And uh, as you know, the term Marvel zombie was almost a, a pejorative. Mm-hmm. Because right, because there was the the feeling that oh these Marvel zombies these are guys that only buy Marvel comics you know they won't buy Sandman they won't buy Watchmen they just buy Marvel comics you know they're Marvel zombies they go in the store and they just blindly go to Marvel books and buy. Um, so Mark Millar kind of turned that on its head and he took the phrase and he made something out of it that almost became it was like its own separate company you know it was yeah. Marvel zombies company we we just couldn't do enough of that stuff and. Um, uh, how Arthur Soden came about, I really don't know, but I know it was an inspired, whoever did come up with it, it was really inspired. And uh, as I say, I was always a fan of his work, having, you know, since I remember seeing it mm-hmm. on some of the epic illustrateds that I had worked on. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously the, the stories were good in the Marvel Zombies books, but I, I think a big part of that also was those covers, because, again, they were so eye-catching and just brilliantly done. They were. They really were. I, I, when they would come in, I was just blown away by them myself. And I, I love the whole Marvel Zombies thing. I remember one, one time when I was working with, uh, with Robert Kirkman, um, he was wondering how far he could push the boundaries on the Marvel Zombie stuff. And he did, um, I think when, uh, when he was leaving the books, I think he wrote like a kind of a farewell on the Marvel Zombies things. And he mentioned in there that he had contacted me with some outrageous ideas. And he said, I don't think they're going to go for this up at the office. I think this is going too far and all that. And I said yes to every single one of them. Because I thought, if we're going to push the envelope anywhere, we're already in the, in, the, in the swamp with this thing. Let's just go all the way. So as far as we could push Marvel Zombies with eating people and stuff, <laughs> I was for it. And I, I, I pushed the envelope as far as we could. And every time Robert Kirkman would come up with something, I'd say, yeah, let's give it a try. I think the one idea that I had contributed to that that I'd mentioned to him was, I said, why don't we have like a zombie Galactus or Galactus go uh, to to Marvel Earth when it's all full of zombies, and let's have the zombies eat him because Galactus was basically a planet eater. I said, well, let's have him go there and let's have the zombies eat him. So that was I just thought the idea of that was was kind of you know funny and and turned on its head to, to what normally occurs with Galactus. So we just we just couldn't do enough stuff. But when you think about it, when they turning characters into zombies, having guys run around who have one arm, you know, or, or missing half their head because it had been chewed off or something. It's just the silliest but most fun stuff imaginable in a, in a very gross way, I have to say. Well, absolutely. Um, I have two last questions, and I promise I'll let sure. you know. Um, fast forwarding, now, I, again, I'd love to sit down with you again sometime to do more of the kind of the Ultimate Universe stuff, but a question Anytime. I had just because it kind of ties into earlier. Um, so when you're, when you're editing Ultimate Spider-Man, and now you do the Ultimate version of the Clone Saga, was that kind of a weird kind of coming full circle in terms of Spider-Man? Yes. But, you know, when Brian Bendis told me the story, what he wanted to do, because Brian's a guy who plans things out in advance, when Brian told me what he wanted to do, I said, wow, that sounds great. Let's do it. Because I remember, he, you know, he approached me about it, and um, he said, you know, Ralph, I want to do the Clone Saga. And I said, Brian, let, let's do it. After, after he told me where he wanted to go with this thing, I said, that's okay. I said, first of all, 
people would think we wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. I said, let's prove them wrong, and let's do something phenomenal with this. And Brian did. I loved his version of the Clone Saga. I think that uh, I, I loved what he did on Ultimate Spider-Man. I mean, from the very beginning, I was so proud to have been on that book, to work with him and Mark Bagley for over 100 issues. They, they have such an incredible, I, I don't know, I may have stayed on for 120 issues or whatever, but they had such a stint on that book, and they played so well with the, with the Spider-Man universe and giving it this twist that they did. Um, I loved working with Brian and, of course, with Mark Bagley, who I worked with on the regular Amazing Spider-Man book. But Brian, um, when I started with Brian, and Joe put him with me, Joe's idea was to put a very established Marvel editor with a guy who was very new to Marvel Comics and kind of had me rub off, my instincts kind of rub off on Brian um, as, as sort of the independent guy. And uh, Brian took to Marvel right away. Um, to see his growth on, a, on, on Marvel, to become, you know, one of the engineers of where the Marvel universe went and to have been there for 17 years, um, I was so proud to have started with Brian. Uh, he, again, I, we became very, very good friends whenever we would uh, meet at the uh, retreats. We always, you know, would hang out and everything. And he was a, he was a, a lot of fun, had a great he was a great guy to write Spider-Man. You know, he had the feelings. He understood Peter Parker. And um, I do remember when I, I was working on the first four or five issues, they were doing the origin. And we had four or five issues where, you know, Peter Parker was not in his costume. And I remember Bill Jemis, uh, who was looking over stuff, because, you know, Bill and Joe had created the Ultimate Line. And... Um, Bill came to me at one point, he goes, Ralph, he goes, you know, he's not the Spider-Man costume yet. I said, Bill, I said, I would stake my reputation that it's not going to make a bit of difference because the story is so compelling that no reader is going to look at this and go, huh, I'm not picking up the next issue. He's not running around in a costume. It was that good. That origin of that character is so good that you don't need to have him in a costume until the end. Readers are going to pick that book up because the story is good. It was the same thing with Man Without Fear. Mm. If you look through that, right, yeah. we had 100 pages, I guess. I don't remember counting it, but we had like five or six, ran five or six issues. And he doesn't become Daredevil until the last page. <laughs> he puts that costume on on the last page. It didn't matter. Nobody's ever come up to me and go, boy, did I waste my money on that thing? He doesn't even get in costume. I never thought that was a point. I always thought the point of it was you tell a good story. The character gets in costume because the story dictates it, not because it's page three and we've got to get the character in costume, we're going to lose the readers. If you tell them a good story, they're going to stick around. And they stuck around on, on Ultimate Spider-Man. There's a question you may not be able to answer, but I'm just always been curious because of the proximity. I mean, you're, you're when you start working on the Ultimate line, obviously you had been doing the Spider-Man line, and while you were on the Spider-Man line, you did have Spider-Man Chapter 1, which, on the face of it, when you first kind of read the solicitations, doesn't feel that different from Ultimate, and obviously Ultimate became its own thing, but on the face of it, it would have kind of seemed similar to people kind of reading solicits at the time. Was there any perception that this would have been too close to something that, for some people, hadn't quite been what they'd hoped it would be? It's an interesting point you bring up, um, but actually, no, at least in my mind, there was never a sense uh, of that. I know that, you know, uh, this was John Byrne's vehicle, and I know that uh, John, you know, uh, came up with some really interesting ideas to sort of play around with, this, with the spider mythos, you know, from the beginning. 
Um, but this, the ultimate thing, was a way of starting with the origin and saying, okay, we have a completely different universe here, and, you know, this is not so much a what if as a what is, but in a very different universe, and we're going to have other books that are going to be attached to this, and it became a separate universe. With chapter one, I don't think the readers ever got the sense that this was like an alternate universe that was, you know, going to be around for a long time, and we didn't start with the origin, if I remember correctly. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure, but I, it's interesting that you mentioned that. You might have found some connections between the two, but I think because uh, there was such a different um, vibe about, about Ultimate Spider-Man that I don't think people... People made that connection between the two. Do you remember in chapter one? Did we start with Spider-Man's origin? Am I, or, or? You, you def- definitely did because you tied in the uh, the lab accident that created Doctor Octopus with the origin of Peter. Okay, okay, and you know what? Maybe, maybe if that's the case, maybe a reader could draw more of a connection between those two. But I honestly never did. Maybe because I was working. Mm you know, on it from behind the scenes, so I knew what the idea was. The idea behind doing chapter one was never to sort of clean the slate specifically for the reader. It was to do different things. Mm. But on Ultimate Spider-Man, the the kind of publishing goal was to have a completely clean Spider-Man mythos. So you didn't have to have read anything else that had to do with Spider-Man. We were going to start from the very beginning and we were going to give you Spider-Man and we were going to take it from there and create our own mythos that went from, you know, page one onward. But uh, we knew that editorially and in terms of publishing, there was a whole different reason behind doing Ultimate Spider-Man and the Ultimate line than there was between doing Chapter 1. So maybe from my point of view, I didn't see the connection as much, but maybe you as a reader would have seen more of a connection, so I can understand that. Now, when you, when you relaunched the Spider-Man books, again, I guess it would have been around 98 or so, and you go from having the four titles down to two, now you have Howard writing both, and one of them is doing with, with John. Um, how big of a get did it feel at the time to, to bring John on to the books? Because you know, he hadn't really been kind of a big Marvel guy for a while. Um, so was it kind of a big get at the time to have him kind of be a part of the kind of creative force driving Spider-Man in this kind of new, fresh coat of paint, you know, we're, we're putting aside you know, those four books in the past. We're moving forward with new number ones. Yes. Um, anytime you can get John Byrne on a project, you're doing pretty good because John is a major mover and shaker. Um, and I believe, uh, I have to say, I think it was Howard Mackey um, who made the call on that one. Uh, John and I, again, I knew John very well. You know, we, we certainly became friends. I used to go up to his, his parties that we'd have in Connecticut, and, you know, we, we, were, we were good buddies. But I did not make the call. Howard, I think, was closer to John than I was, and I think um, the call was made from Howard to John or from John to Howard, and that's when things started, the start of the ball rolling. But I don't believe it was myself. I don't think that I actually started that. But certainly having John, you know, as a creative force on there with Howard, um, was something I look forward to because I think we, you know, he, we'd done very well with those other four books, um, and I was happy with them. But then, you know, this was sort of a, a different, a little different take on things, and um, it was going to be interesting to see where John would go. Now, 
I, again, this this may have been a, a question that you can't answer because I don't know if it was directly part of your office or not. I know that I don't think you were specifically involved in it, but uh, the ser- the Slinger series that kind of came about using the identities from the Spider Man Identity Crisis uh, crossover. Um, what was kind of the decision? I mean, it was kind of during that kind of contraction period where you weren't seeing as many kind of new titles that didn't really have um, a clear kind of uh, connection to other things. Like this was four brand new characters, totally new concept, uh, using kind of discarded identities from Peter Parker. Um, how did that book ever kind of get approved? I'm, I love the book. I'm one of those kind of slinger heads from back in the day, but I'm always kind of curious that on, on how it got approved during that kind of you know, bankruptcy period, um, and how it, you know, actually got published and was able to last the year that it did. Well, I wasn't editing it at the time. Um, I do know that Bob Harris, I believe, was behind that. I think as editor-in-chief, he may have come up with it, or it may have been, um, I think the guy who wrote it was a guy that Bob had hired on as, um, uh, no, the guy who I think edited it was someone that Bob had hired as an editor at the time. Um, and I think the idea of doing Slingers, I thought, was, was fun because there was a connection with Spider-Man and they were going a different way with it. But I did not have anything to do with it. Nobody came to me and said, you know, uh, should we do something like this? I think this was generated by Bob and the editor back then of, uh, of Spider-Man, who was whoever was doing it. But I had, had nothing to do with it at the time. Although, as I said, I read them and I thought they were fun. And, and you thought they were fun, too. You, you said you were a Slingerhead. I, I definitely was, yeah. So that was I. I that's nineteen ninety eight. So I would have been uh, just about fifteen. So it was kind of right in that sweet spot for me. Um, and so I've, I'm actually surprised. I mean, now that we've in current comics, Peter David's used them a little bit. So like they're still around. Right. So I keep wondering if it eventually will. You know, I'll get a collected edition if I can finally have that on my shelf. But yeah, I was definitely yeah. a fan from back in the day. Yeah, I do. I do know that we have. We did do some collection of the originals. I don't know if we collected the um, the later Slinger stuff, but we did do um, the, this secret identities thing, the um, identity yeah. crisis. They were all collected, right? You probably Absolutely. have that tray pack. That yes, I'm staring at it on my shelf at the moment. Oh, okay, <laughs> it's there. <laughs> I have it on my shelf. I first I have the Clone Saga issues um, yep. collected, right? And then I then I have uh, Spider Hunt, and then next to it I have the uh, I follow it in chronological order. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that was um, that probably was, was Bob Harris's doing because I think he was editor in chief at the time, and I remember hearing about it, but I don't remember. And I'm trying to remember the editor's name who was involved with it then. Um, Ruben Diaz. Ruben Diaz. That's right. That was a, a Bob Harris hire. Yes, yes. And okay. I did, was Ruben the writer on that or the editor? He was the editor. The writer was Joe Harris. Joe Harris. Okay. Okay, right, right. I do remember Ruben as the editor on that. And I think he may have talked to me once about it, but, you know, I, I really didn't have anything to contribute. I thought, hey, this will, this will be fun. You know, you're reviving these characters in some capacity. You know, why not? It shows that, um, you know, we were getting some of the love then, so that so, was good. So there was no actual connection through the Spider office? Like, what office would that have been kind of coming out of then? Um I don't know, because you know what? I'm honestly unsure of the time. Was I editing Spider-Man at the time that Slingers came out? I'm not... Uh... Uh, yeah, you were, because it was, it, was it was like November, December, or late uh, 1998, so that was around the time of the next chapter kind of relaunch. Oh, okay. Then, you know, I'm, I'm sure that I was consulted on it. I'm sure that, um, you know, I trusted Ru- uh, Ruben. Um, I had no reason, you know, to have any problems with it, and because it wasn't... Peter Parker becoming these characters. It was a whole different set of guys. I probably only may have glanced at the stuff. I don't think I, I really had to be very directly involved with them. 
Okay. And then my, my last question, and I promise this actually is my last question this time. It's okay. I'm, I'm happy to go on here. This has been fun. Um, what was it like and to actually get to work on the Dark Tower books? What was the extent of your involvement, and how early in the process were you involved? Well, that, again, was sort of like a whole other editorial career, because um, when I heard that Marvel was going to get the rights to Dark Tower, um, that was one of the things that I jumped up and down with, you know, and said, oh, oh, let me edit this, let me edit this, I want to do this, because I'm a huge Stephen King fan, and I was a huge Dark Tower fan, and um, Dan Buckley had no problems with giving it to me, and uh, I have to hand it to Joe Casada because he picked the team for that. I'd like to say that I thought of Jay Lee for the artist on that, and I didn't, or for Peter David as the writer, but I didn't, um, you know, I, I just said, um, wow, this is a great choice. I would never have thought of it. But uh, what happened was we had an initial meeting with Stephen King and with Chuck Verrill, who was kind of his right-hand guy. And I remember um, Stephen was, was such a nice guy. He's, you know, in any room he's in, he's the 800-pound gorilla. But he couldn't have been more cooperative, more nice, uh, sweeter guy to work with you, you couldn't have found. And so we had our initial meeting, and his idea was, he said, you know, I don't think you guys should be doing straight adaptations of it, you know, comic book adaptations. He goes, his idea was, let's let's work with Roland DeShane as a young man, and let's sort of bring him up to the point where he gonna, he's going to become the gunslinger. Let's show his trials to become the gunslinger, and we'll bring him up to the Battle of Jericho Hill. And his, I remember the phrase that he used in the meeting, in the meeting was, a boy's tests becomes a man's quest. That was his that was his line. And we all went, Wow, that's now we know why you're Stephen King and we're not. <laughs> uh, I also had the opportunity to remind him that we had actually worked together before because in Bizarre Adventures, decades before, when Denny O'Neill was editing it and I was the assistant, um Somehow, connection had been made, and uh, Stephen wound up doing an adaptation of one of his night shift books, or one of his night shift short stories, The Lawnmower Man. And Walt Simonson drew it, and we sent it off to Stephen to write, who'd never written a comic book before. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. And he wrote it, and it was like flawless. <laughs> it was just great. And we had an opportunity to... I never spoke with him at that time. I know them and all, but um, I uh, was, had worked on the book then, and it was great. He, uh, Walt did a cover painting, and Walt actually drew it, and Stephen actually did the script on it. So I brought that up to him, and he looked through it, and he, you know, he, was, he was very pleased and happy, and he, was, he really liked um, what we were doing on it, because you know, he, he would look at the issues um, as, as they would come out. You know, we would always send them out to him to make sure before the book left that he had no problems with it. And Chuck Verrill, uh, as I say, his right-hand man would go through it uh, with a, you know, with a fine-tooth comb to make sure we were on the right track. And also, uh, really, the linchpin of the whole thing was Robin Firth. Um, she was the woman that Stephen employed um, to follow up on Dark Tower stuff, or to because it was seven volumes. Mm. There were things that he had, so he had Robin, who was like a total Dark Tower, uh, you know, geek. She knew everything about Dark Tower. And when he needed something on the Dark Tower, he would call her up. You know, she was employed to give him information on the Dark Tower. And I remember <laughs> even in the meeting that we had, there was something he wanted to think of with Dark Tower, and it was kind of slipping his mind. And he asked me, and I couldn't recall it, so he called Robin up in England. Oh, wow. She got on the line, and she gave us the answer. 
So um, she became the person. She was the go-to person. She was sort of the touchstone between us and Stephen. And, you know, we, we became very close. She lived in England, but she would come over here, and we would sit down, and we would go over the storylines. She was one, the one who did the overall plot line for where the book was going to go. And, you know, she, she and I would sit down, and uh, I would talk about it um, and give my input after she'd come up with it. And then we would send it off to Jay to draw and then to Peter David to script. And it was, we just had a great time on that book, and we made sure that uh, it always went through channels, you know, to Chuck Verrill and to, and to Stephen to make sure they, they were happy with it all. But I think he made a very wise choice in us not doing straight adaptations because, um, you know, it, it made us kind of think outside the box and uh, sort of go in a different direction rather than sitting there. We certainly drew elements in from the books, um, largely from Wizard and Glass. But uh, a lot of the stuff, you know, was, was kind of original. And, uh, and I think it worked out very, very well. And the other time that I had a chance to meet Stephen was at one of the comic conventions where he was coming in to uh, promote and publicize at, at uh, Marvel's expense um, the Dark Tower series. Uh, we were going to bring him on stage and on a panel and have him talk and, you know, hang around for a while. And uh, he was happy to do it. In fact, he suggested doing it during the course of our initial meeting. But uh, he had to consult with his own people to see whether or not he had the time. So, you know, everything worked out, and he came up and did it. And I remember we met in the uh, beforehand, um, before we went on, and he said, Ralph, really like what you're doing on Dark Tower. He goes, would you be interested in adapting the stand? And I was flabbergasted. I said, wow. I said, Stephen, if we can do the stand, I said, that would be magnificent. I said, but you have to talk to Dan Buckley and to the, you know, other people, the powers that be, because if they give the go-ahead, you know, I'm on board for this. So, of course, we adapted the stand as well, and that also worked out beautifully. We, we had the same artist, writer, letterer, and colorist all the way through from beginning to end on that, and it worked out. Mike Perkins is the penciler, mm -hmm. um, did a phenomenal job on that, and, um, you know, the, the writing, every, everything just worked out so well. So it was, uh, we were very, very happy with the, with the stand. But uh, again, going back to Dark Tower, um, you know, I would, uh, those were the two times that I met Stephen, um, and he, uh, you know, sent a letter every now and then saying that he was very happy, you know, with the stuff, uh, that, that he liked the direction we were going in, and just keep doing what you're doing. So we knew we had his blessing, and we knew we had his guidance on it. And uh, we, we worked on that book, and we got many, you know, four hardcovers we got out of it. Worked out beautifully. Excellent. And then um, just to kind of leave off, obviously, recently you've been, you've had a, a bunch of, uh, you know, one-shots you've been working on with Marvel. Um, where can, you know, what, what have you been working on lately that you can kind of tell us about? Obviously, I know because I've, I've been reading it, but for those who haven't, where have we been able to kind of see your work most recently? Well, yes, I did do a bunch of one-shots. I've, I've, um, I've also been doing a bunch of 11-page um, Avengers stories um, that's good discipline because you have to do a complete Avengers story in 11 pages, and I like the discipline of that, that you can't just kind of wander off. You know, it's got to be very tight. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I work on uh, this with Darren Sanchez. This is for Panini. Uh, the um, outside publisher, and we do it, and then we publish them as digests. Um, but I do those. I do maybe one or two a week. And I am also um, have done these one-shots, which I've been very happy with, um, that we also do through Panini, where the idea is that 
um, like I, I did a Black Panther one. I did an Avengers one. Every, everything that's been connected to the, to the films. I did a, a Thor, Black Panther, Avengers, and most recently one that just came out last week, Ant-Man, uh, in preparation for the film. The idea behind these is that, say a kid has gone to the movies and he's seen the Black Panther and he's never read the Black Panther, and he goes, wow, Dad, you know, he's a young kid, maybe he's 10, 12 years old, and he goes, wow, I'd like to read a Black Panther comic. Now, it probably is tough for a young kid or for anybody on the outside to go and buy a Tahishi Coates Black Panther and get into it, you know, not having gotten into it from the start or just getting into it cold because it's very involved stuff. It's great material, and it's, you know, the guy's doing a phenomenal job on the book, but to just sort of jump in as like a one-issue thing, that would be kind of tough to do because he's really got a novel going in that book. And the same thing with Avengers. It would, you know, it would be sort of tough to say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm a kid now and I've seen the movies and I want to read an Avengers. What Avengers should I read? Well, you know, they're involved with a lot of things right now, so it's kind of tough. So the idea behind these was that I would do these one-shots and they would be on sale and, you know, maybe the comic book store guy would direct a kid coming in who just wanted to get an Avengers fix and just wanted to know what the Avengers was about without all the connections to all the other books. It would be a standalone Avengers story, but it would certainly be contemporary and current, but it just would not have all the connections to all the other Avengers stuff that a kid might go, boy, this is, I got a lot of stuff to catch up on here. <laughs> so it basically would to do these fun standalone comics, and I've had a lot of fun with them. Um, I, I, one thing I wanted to do, which they didn't do with Ant-Man, but they did do it with the Black Panther was, in, in the Black Panther one, they republished Stan and Jack's original Panther story um, from way back in FF um, 56 or whatever the heck it was, and I thought that was good because I thought the reader should see that, you know, we're not the ones who created the Black Panther, that this all comes from the Lee Kirby well and that they should see that. What I wanted in the Ant-Man one, which I just did, I brought back a, a villain from the um, Tales to Astonish days. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and I brought back a character called the Living Eraser, because I remember when I was a kid, and I saw that, that comic book on the stands, I was just, I never forgot the cover, because it was Giant Man actually being erased. You know, yeah. he turned into Giant Man in that story as well as Ant-Man. And he was just sort of being erased on the cover. And I went, I never forgot that cover. And someday I said, I got to use this villain because this is too cool to pass by. So the opportunity came up because Mark Basso, the editor I've worked with on these, um, and he's, he's a terrific guy to work with. He, um, he said, Ralph, he goes, the, the, the marching orders that we got were they want you to do an Ant-Man story that is going to pick up on something that Hank, <clears throat> that Hank Pym was involved with, but never got to finish. And you're going to use Scott Lang. So I said, wow, they really threw a curve at us. So in other words, I've got to do an Ant-Man story that deals with something that had to do with Hank Pym. But it was something he wasn't able to finish, and now Scott Lang has got to come in and finish it. I said, well, give me some time to reread all the old Hank Pym Ant-Man stories, and I'll come up with something. So I went back, you know, through my Marvel Essentials and my Tales to Astonishes, and I said, okay, once they left the Living Erasers Dimension Z, which was, the, this was a great fun story. This was terrific. Um, I said, there's an opportunity for me to go back to see what happened afterwards, to go back to Dimension Z. And this time, it's Janet Van Dyne 
and it's Scott Lang. And, of course, the other fun thing about it was Janet Van Dyne lives in Creskill, New Jersey, which is where I live. So <laughs> she's, she's in Creskill, too. She got put in Creskill, and I thought, hey, this is a, this is a lot of fun. So I, had, um, I set a story up. Um, with a lot of help from my editor, Mark Besso, where we had Scott Lang go to see Janet Van Dyne, and she gets contacted from the uh, guys in Dimension Z about, you know, what's going on with the living eraser and all this crazy stuff going on. But the thing that I regretted was that they couldn't republish the original story because it would have been such a nice, uh, a nice way just to march into my story from that original story. I was able to do a flashback, though, okay. where I gave you what happened in that story. And I wanted to maintain the sense of fun about this story. I wanted to kind of write it in the style that those stories were written in, that crazy anything-can-happen science fiction style, you know, that Stan had back when he was writing those stories, because you had all kinds of crazy stuff. I love those things. <laughs> and, um, and they, you know, they, they, were, they were just wonderful little yeah, stories. So I, I, took, um, I took that as my, uh, as my template, try to play it as if Stan was doing this back in the, you know, in the early 60s, early to mid-60s, and, um, and I, uh, you know, worked on this Ant-Man story. So I'm just sorry that I wasn't able to do that, to, to have that original story that had been, that really led into this one mm -hmm. 40, 40, 50 years later republished. But we do mention it in there, and I do have a flashback to it. But um, what I will tell you is right now, I am very deeply involved with a new acquisition, a new old acquisition that Marvel Comics has gotten that I will be heavily involved with in every aspect, uh, and I'll probably be listed as consulting editor, and that's the uh, Conan books. Um, uh. Marvel has reacquired um, from Conan Properties Conan the Barbarian, and we're going to be doing three Conan books. And too much more about it, I don't want to say now, but I'm heavily involved with all three of them. And um, I'm working as consulting editor, again, with Mark Basso, and we've already got in uh, several plots, and we're picking editorial teams for it now, thinking about covers and all, but they're going to be three, three separate books um, dealing with three different timelines and three different periods and all. And I've always loved Conan and Cole, and I worked with Roy on the Conan stuff back when I was um, just a, just a, yeah, a lad on staff, and Roy was uh, the editor of Savage Sword, so I worked on it because he was out on the West Coast, and we, of course, put the book together here in the East Coast. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, you know, a chance to get involved again. And I, I remember when I heard about it, um, I mentioned it to CB, and I said, CB, as soon as you get these books, I said, please, I want to be involved in these books. I said, you know, I can't come on staff every day. I said, but I, I want to have editorial involvement with them. And CB was very nice about it and got me involved as soon as they uh, got the property. So that's going to take up a lot of my time. That's great, though. Yes, I'm very happy about it. If I, you know, if I could pick a book, uh, a group of books to work on, it would be the Barbarian books because I love Conan, I love Cull. I did a whole issue of um, of uh, Bizarre Adventures one time, um, where John Bolton and Doug Mensch did a long Cull story. And, and at the time, John Bolton was a British artist who hadn't really done anything here in America. This was like his first American work, and I was very proud to have brought him over here. And then I edited a series of Cull comics um, when we had the property. 
and um, I've always loved Conan. And as I said, I worked on Savage Sword as Roy's East Coast liaison, so that was a great thrill, too. So now the opportunity to get the property of Conan back again and to be able to work on the books, you know, from scratch um, is going to be it's going to be great. So, you know, it's it's kind of kind of running full circle. I, I started uh, on a lot of the, uh, you know, things like Conan back then. Conan was a black and white magazine that I, I worked on, mm-hmm. and uh, now I'm, I'm back working on, uh, on Conan again, so it's, uh, it's going to be great fun. Do you, do you think you could ever convince uh, Rory to write it again? I'm sure we could. Um, we just have to get the, the book together and, and uh, the books together and, you know, f- uh, figure out the formats and the whole thing, which is it's still in sort of in Kuwait now. You know, we're still playing around with it. But I have no doubt that if we wanted to get Roy back on it, because I, if, if I recall correctly, while the books were with Dark Horse, I think Roy was doing some of the Conan stuff there. Well, yeah, you might be right there. I actually, I'm not exactly sure, but you might be right. Yeah, I think he had done stuff. So I think, you know, Roy and Conan is a great fit, and I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll get Roy back on it, too. But, uh, but yes, with the opportunity to work on Conan and to continue my, my long association with Marvel as both a writer and editor is, um, is something I, I look forward to. And I have to tell you that I have, have just as much enthusiasm for working on the stuff now as I ever have. You know, people may think, well, you know, you're doing it for so long. Don't you kind of, didn't you kind of want to, you know, take the time and sort of fade out from it and all? And I have to tell you, no, I have... All, all the fire in the belly to do stuff now as I ever have. I never lost my feeling for wanting to put out a good comic book, whether I did it as a writer or as an editor. I have that same feeling as the first day I walked into Marvel. Um, it's never changed. Well, and obviously that's why you're, you've you've kept you know been kept around so long is that you have that desire to put out good products, and you know that I, I mean that's why you're the survivor. <laughs> Maybe maybe you got something there. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> but I certainly have. Uh, I've always uh, appreciated the fact that Marvel has been willing to keep up its association with me. Mm. So uh, I, I'm I'm thankful, and it's it's also great to be working with CB as as editor in chief because CB started with me um, years ago back in uh, the early 2000s. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Well, you know, Ralph, thank you so much for spending so much of your time with me today. And again, if we can get you back on in the future to kind of do more deep dives into the, I mean, you've had an amazing career with so much and there's, we only touched the surface of it. So if we can ever have you back for more, I know that my listeners would love to have you uh, because you have some of the most, some of the best stories I've heard. (laughs) Well, thank you for saying that. Thanks for a very, very, very nicely structured interview. And, um, Please uh, do not hesitate to contact me at any time. As I say, during during the the evening hours is always better. I've got the I'm I'm, I'm kind of more awake. You know, I'm more of a, <laughs> of a, a late night guy than I am a, a you know an early early morning guy. So I'm I'm just much more aware of things at this time of night when a lot of people are are dozing off. But uh, this is a good time for me. So I'm, I'm happy to to chat about uh, other aspects of the the career or, or Marvel anytime you want. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much. This has been great. Same here.